How should we use player projections during the season? I'll ask Ray Murphy, the guy who runs the projection engine at BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 7th. It's show number 25 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, talking about how to use the projections during the season, about ADPs from those second chance drafts held the Memorial Day week, about applying Baseball HQ's leading indicators, and of course, Ray will have his boons and banes for the rest of the season as well. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Dallas Koichel, Craig Kimbrell, Andrew McCutcheon, and other National League player news. And Jock Thompson will bring us news from the American League, including Carlos Carrasco, Hunter Dozier, Nelson Cruz, and other American League players. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about how he's applying StatCast data to fantasy analysis, and we'll have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cincinnati first baseman Brian O'Grady. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at some key showdowns this weekend, including a marquee matchup on Sunday with Cy Young right-hander Blake Snell of Tampa in Boston to face the Red Sox and lefty Eduardo Rodriguez. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the May Quiz. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Red Sox are working their bullpen in interesting, albeit frustrating ways. We gotta talk some baseball. On Thursday of this week, the Red Sox beat the Royals 7-5, and closer Matt Barnes got the save. It was his fourth save of the season, and that's second most on the team behind Ryan Brazier's six. Three other pitchers have got saves as well in Boston. Brandon Workman has a couple, and Marcus Walden and Heath Hembree have one apiece. Now, the interesting thing about Matt Barnes and this Boston bullpen is that the saves are most definitely not going to the best reliever. Barnes is clearly the most skilled guy in that pen. He has the highest strikeout percentage, the highest dom rate, not just in the pen, but on the whole staff. He has the highest command ratio and strikeout minus walk percentage on the team and the highest ground ball to fly ball ratio on the staff as well. And yet, he only has four saves and those other guys have ten. And that's because the Red Sox and manager Alex Cora are using Barnes wisely. They're using him late in games, but only to get the other team's best hitters. Of his 25 appearances, 15 have been in high leverage situations. That's 60%, compared with 50% for Brazier, 43% for Workman, 35% for Walden, and 31% for Hembry. Cora was recently quoted as saying the team knew that they were imposing an outsized workload on Barnes, not because of his innings pitch and not because of his frequency of appearances, but because of his relentless use against everybody else's best hitters. And remember, 
Leverage Index is based only on the inning and the run differential. It doesn't take into account the strength of the batters. It's all very smart of Boston and Cora, and it's all very frustrating for owners who drafted Barnes on the basis of his skills. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Only to see lesser pitchers getting the saves, which are all that count for most of us in most of our fantasy games. But that idea was always based on a flawed premise, that the team would always use its best reliever to close games. That premise is going to be increasingly questionable as we move into the brave new age of smarter teams with smarter managers and smarter bullpen use. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, the very smart manager of a very smart team. It's part one of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for the invite, Patrick. Glad to be here. Before we get started on some important questions about fantasy baseball and all that goes into figuring things out, how are your teams doing? Uh, pretty good. You know, it's funny. The um, There's a saying in uh, golf that uh, you know Jim Nance always says at the Masters every Saturday in April every year. He's like, it's moving day at the Masters, right? And I, I kind of feel like June is moving month in our games. And I've got some, some teams moving up the standings and feeling good about it. I've got... Uh, Second place in Tout Wars, uh, Brent and I are second place in the FSDA League, and my uh, my NFBC team is shot from like 10th to 4th in the last couple of weeks, so feeling pretty good overall. You make an interesting point about the idea that at a certain point you have to realize whether your team is moving and in which direction. Uh, I've been moving up in my Fantasy Baseball Invitational League. I think I'm second now in the league and maybe 30th overall, something like that. But in my Tout Wars League, I've been first or second literally from day one, pretty much. And in the last sort of five days, I've fallen to sixth. And it's partly because the categories are so tight where in any given day, if you have a bad, you know, on-base percentage day, you can lose three points in that category, or you can gain or lose three points in ERA and WHIP because of the uh, relative smallness of the denominators. But at what point do you think that we can look at these trends in movement and start to think, well, this is where, what my team actually is. Up till now, we've been um, volatile to a certain extent, moving up and down, as I said. But at what point do you look at your teams and go, this is what I got? You know, pretty much right about now. And I sort of feel like, you know, April and May is so much about, you know, figuring out what you have and where the holes are and working fab and trying to, you know, patch those holes or upgrade where you can that, you know, Eventually, you got to sit back and let them play, and you know, not that you stopped grinding the waiver wire, but you know, now you know if you've patched and you know rounded out the uh, rough edges of your roster, then now's the time you can get some positive momentum going. And I mean, if you're not at that point yet, Mike, it's funny you mentioned two GFBI. That's that's one team that I just have that's you know hasn't got anything going all year, and I'm still grinding it, but not uh, not very successfully. But um, you know, if you've done the if you've been successful in April and May to try to you know, round off those loose edges and clean up problem areas and deepen your roster, then, I mean, the whole point of that that process is to, you know, position you for, to pick up some more velocity and go up the standings. And, you know, generally, I, it's anecdotal, but generally this is the time of year when, if, that, if that's going to happen, this is the time of year where I see it. Do you use any projections, and we'll talk more about projections in a second, but do you project your leagues and f to figure out where you might end up and which leagues you have a chance in and which ones you don't? Um, you know, not, <coughs> not for all leagues. I will, 
you know, if there's a particular uh, league that's got a tight race, or if I'm trying to pr- project like the, the impact of uh, adding a new player or you know getting someone back from the DL, or whether a or whether a ratio category in particular can be rehabbed, I'll, I'll bust out the uh, you know, either the calculator or the spreadsheet or Roto Lab, and you know, sort of set up the teams and see what um, see what the projections spit out, just as a baseline to find out where I am. But real, you know, I, I really do a lot more of it just by kind of what I call pack analysis with the standings, and especially in April and May, I've talked about this before. I'm generally just looking at whether my team is you know sort of in the fat part of the bell curve in a particular category, and I don't much care early in the season, whether I'm 10th or 4th in the category, as long as, you know, I am close to that pack that's clustered together in the middle of it always, and I get very nervous when I see my teams falling out of a of that pack in a particular area, because that gets to be a slog just to get back into that pack, let alone get to the top of it, so it's really more like, uh, you know, more like a dipstick test than it is, uh, you know, some advanced number crunching in, in most cases. I do look at the projections. Uh, we use, uh, at Tout Wars, we use the uh, on-roto system, and they have a thing they call the toy box, and you can go in and see. Uh, there's two different projection systems you can use to see where you're likely to finish or where the where the projections have you finishing, I guess is a fairer way to say it. And uh, I've been using that for that league and as well as the HQ Writers League, and it suddenly dawned on me one day that, uh, you know, I was – I was uh, in the HQ Writers League. I was projected to finish like second to last in in innings. And I thought, well, that can't be right. I've got like 14 starters on this team and I'm streaming them in and out constantly. And then it struck me, whenever you use the projection system, it only looks at the guys you have active on your roster. And on that particular day, I had like one starter and eight relievers because that's what I do. And I stream the starters in and out. And so the picture that I'm getting from the projection system is really distorted. And that made me think, well, wait a second. Even in my other leagues, I, I, I show to be in a certain position in home runs and RBIs, for instance, against teams that are shortly to get back uh, Giancarlo Stanton, or shortly to get back Aaron Judge. And right now, those kind of players aren't counted in those guys' um, projected uh, final standings, which means I'm getting a really quite a distorted view of it, and I have to do some manual tweaking if I really want to understand where I'm going to f- uh, finish. Based on those projections, I'm going to have to do some adding and subtracting. Yeah, then there's the stuff you can't account for. You don't know who else is going to get hurt on your team or the guy you're chasing. You know, that's kind of where... Kind of, kind of where my analysis kind of breaks down, just at the, you know, at the pack level or the fat part of the bell curve. You know, it, it's everything else you account for after determining whether you're sort of on the same footing is, you know, going to be determined by, you know, I don't want to say by happenstance, but by by events that the projection engines aren't going to account for. You know, right? Because they can't account for them at this point. Ray, are you uh, looking at your own roster and other rosters, trying to start thinking about trading? Yeah, very much so. Uh, when we get to the uh, boons and banes in the uh, toward the end of our segment here, I, I actually was focused on you know sort of trade targets and selling sell candidates when I was doing that, and it's uh, that's another thing that I think is uh, this is the time of year for that. Uh, I'm you know I find myself in a bunch of uh, non trading leagues this year between the NFBC and tgfbi going that way so i'm you know training is not always at the front of my mind but uh i've been particularly thinking about it in tout wars because my team has got a couple of uh 
couple of strengths and some very clear needs and trading is a, uh, you know, is a great path to balance off some of those things if it's available in your league. So, so yeah, this is a, this is a good time of year for that too. And before we leave this talk of our teams, Ray, in the fantasy baseball invitational, they added a wrinkle this year, which was they put everybody who won a league last year into a single division this year, and you're in that division because you did well last year's. And uh, I wonder, how do you think that has affected your competitiveness, not your competitiveness, but everybody's competitiveness in that league, in that league of winners? Does that, uh, has that had a deleterious effect on your ability to compete in everybody else's? I noticed that there's not a lot of guys in that league in the overall. Yeah, it's uh, th- that league is a bloodbath, uh, which is no surprise. Uh, there was a bunch of chatter on Twitter in the preseason about that, and the draft was you know super tight. And uh, you know, I don't think I saw a you know a reach pick or a bad pick in the whole thing. Not that you know, not that this group is better players than uh, you know anybody else in TGFBI, but you know, top to bottom, you know, it's it's just not being a random draw and being people who not just won a league last year, but were motivated to defend it and anxious to, you know, sort of throw some elbows in this champions format, you know, it sort of got sort of getting everyone's, uh, you know, everyone's best focus. Uh, that league is not going well for me. And that's not just because it's a champions league. I, you know, there were a bunch of things that went wrong in my draft that I've been undoing, but I've no- certainly noticed things like it is the most, uh, competitive fab league that I've seen, not in terms of, you know, super aggressive bidding but you know the uh the format shows where there are you know what what a bid is and then what the runner-up bid is and so you know if you were the only guy bidding on someone or if there was other interest and the you know the the top 20 30 pickups every week all have competing bids so everyone's chasing after the same players and just the list of transactions every week is longer than I'm used to seeing in these formats. Everyone is just really grinding their rosters. Everyone's, you know, every, everyone's kind of working their butts off in this league. And uh, I got off to a really bad start. It's gotten better for me lately, but it's just, uh, it's been a real slog trying to move up. Yeah, one last thought on that. On Roto also provides a list of the transactions, including all the bids that were made on players. And because it's an only format league, there's a much much less of a churn because there's just nobody to churn to. And what uh, what I've been noticing, and I wrote about this in Master Notes a couple of weeks ago, is more of the owners are now looking to uh, fab free agent guys who are not even in in the major leagues yet. They're looking down into the minor leagues, uh, trying to forecast which players are likely to come up. Uh, uh, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf grabbed Cavan BGO three or four weeks ago. And of course, in our league, it's very limited reserve list and you have to carry the guy active for a week before you can reserve him. So you have to take the zero for the slot for the week. And more and more guys are, are willing to do that because they want to get the, take, take the jump on getting a Cavan Biggio on their roster rather than waiting for him to get called up and then starting a bidding frenzy. I did the same thing with Oscar Mercado and a couple of Baltimore Oriole guys, uh, DJ Stewart. And, and of course, you get them for a $0 bid or a $1 bid because you're ahead of the curve. But now I'm noticing more and more guys are doing it. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen all kinds of prospects who are close to coming up being uh, being picked up on Fab for a dollar or two. Have you noticed that in uh, in any of your uh, F uh, FBI or NFPC leagues? Yeah, the formats sort of dictates things be handled a little bit differently for two reasons. One is 
that you know the uh, the player pool there is restricted, so you can't can't actually pick up uh, anybody who's not on a major league roster in TGFBI or the NFBC. Uh, you can do that in my tout mix league. You know, tout's got my tout has the same tout rules as yours, but the uh, the penalty you describe for keeping the guy active on the roster for a full week is a little more punitive in the mixed leagues because you're give, you know you're giving up you know 20 at bats of somebody competent uh, as opposed to those only leagues where the re- reserve the uh, free agent pool is so thin and you might only be able to find a part-time player if you were chasing someone who's active right now but you lo- it costs a little more to do it it still happens in the uh, in the tout mixed league I think somebody picked up Keston Cura a couple weeks before he came up um, but you have to be uh, the the, uh, the pros and cons the uh, the scales tip a little bit differently there as far as the cost. Ray, a few minutes ago we were talking about projections, and I know a big part of your role at Baseball HQ is to manage the projections and the projections engine. And I'm interested in your take on something I heard the other day on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. Jeff Erickson and Chris List were talking about the validity and value of projections. Uh, they were talking in particular about football projections, and part of their critique was that the stats are so team-dependent and therefore more highly variable. We tend to think of baseball projections as more reliable because they're more tightly tied to individual skills like strike zone command, pitched ball, batted ball velocity, trajectories, those kind of things. But in a standard 5 by 5 league, I was thinking that four of the ten categories, runs, RBIs, wins, and saves, are very heavily team-dependent, and stolen bases depends a lot on manager decisions and team philosophy. How do the team contexts of these stats affect their validity, do you think? You know, I think it's a, it's a great conversation, and... It got me thinking a little bit about it when you sort of flagged that interview for me a couple of days ago. I, I think we've gotten a lot better, you know, both at HQ and as an industry in accounting for uh, the stolen base element of this. Both, you know, sort of we've all been paying attention to the league-wide fluctuations in stolen bases over the last couple of years. And then knowing that there were teams that would and wouldn't run, you know, um, Manny Machado in Baltimore when Buck Showalter was there and wasn't running at all comes to mind where we knew Machado could run and a straight three-year average of projections would spit out, you know, 15 stolen bases for him. But you also knew that the Orioles were probably only going to steal 15 bases on the year. So you had to make an adjustment for that. But, you know, the, the, the concept of RBIs and runs and, you know, team wins to some degree as well, but RBIs and runs and strength of a lineup is really – Interesting, you know, it got me thinking about like the Twins this year. Nobody really in the preseason flagged the Twins as potentially the enormous offense that they've been now. And, uh, you know, now that we've seen that for two months and, you know, can pretty much crown them the best offense in the AL, you know, everybody on that team probably needs an RBI and run boost in their projections. You know, the projection engine will handle that a little bit on its own just because it starts weighing current year production versus historical. And as we get deeper into the summer, it weighs the current year more. So that sort of gets baked in, but, you know, probably not fast enough or not, you know, not as quickly as we could have realized that, hey, this Twins lineup is for real. And, you know, these guys are probably all going to rack up more runs and RBIs than we projected when we sort of put this team together in the offseason. And, you know, there's a, you know, not that you really stack teams in building a roster, but you could have, uh, you know, targeting some of these, uh, even the lesser twins in uh, fab early in the season probably would have been pretty fruitful. 
Yeah, I remember writing up my uh, AL tout draft for for uh, BaseballHQ.com, and I said uh, at one point, Mitch Garver, I got stuck with this guy. And, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for the injury, he might be uh, might be a 10-home run guy at this point. And uh, a lot of those guys on the Twins are like that. But you, you mentioned that the projections engine will take care of some of the adjustments that need to be made by because of the algorithms that are built into it. But uh, how does Baseball HQ manage the projections to hone what is based basically a, a, a weighted three-year average. So, yeah, if you could go through the process, you know, starting in the off-season, you know, our projections process pretty much starts with the uh, production of the baseball forecaster. And what we start with is pretty much one of those straight three-year weighted averages, uh, Marcel or Steamer or what have you. It's sort of our own flavor of that but the sort of the key differentiator is just that that's a starting point and as we go through the process of producing the forecaster and burping out the you know 800 or whatever it is player boxes with commentary and projections though you know that initial projection gets manually adjusted and gets about five levels of review and manual edit on top of that from you know, the writer who gets assigned the player, you know, first gives us a take on that projection and says, you know, either on the playing time or the performance side, you know, it looks good or, you know, here's where I might make some adjustments because of the underlying metrics. And then it passes up to an editor and then to Brent and to me and to Ron, who has the final edit. And I'm generally the one who's actually taking the comments or the, you know, the recommendations on the projection and actually acting on them. So at my step, like I sit there and I just, you know, I have, I have the capability to just like straight override what that initial three year weighted average was. And I, you know, that's kind of the point where I'm putting my thumb on the scale to either the good or the bad or just the, you know, more or less playing time and, you know, molding and shaping that with the input from, you know, four or five analysts who have looked at it and said, you know, yeah, okay, three-year average is a good good starting point, but here's what I do to it next. So that's where we feel like the, um, you know, the, the, the projection product that we come up with is you know, more refined and more reviewed than just what a, uh, a Marcel would sort of burp out. And that process, you know, continues throughout the, the year and the preseason, you know, there's a ongoing discussion in our staff forums where people just flag for me projections that need a review. And, and our subscribers are great about it too. I just had somebody this week who pinged us about, um, you know, Carlos Gonzalez going to the Cubs and what that had to do for his playing time. And somebody pointed out that uh, Romel Tapia was, you know, outperforming his projections because he's been getting more playing time. And, you know, they just flagged those for review. And then I basically do what I do in the offseason and go in and, you know, put my thumb on the scale a little bit. I don't do a ton of it at this time of year just because I'm we're at the point where I sort of trust that process we were talking about initially, the, the what, what the projection algorithm actually does to account for the in-season um, sample size. But, you know, it, it, I do have that dashboard available to me and we'll bust it out from time to time. Has anyone ever reviewed the overrides that get done to see if you guys are actually improving the projections through that manual process, through that human process? Like you're overriding an algorithm that's uh, had some thought gone into it. It's a weighted three-year average. I'm going to assume I won't ask you what the weights are or how you figure that out because that's proprietary. But uh, as I understand the Baseball HQ process, the 
the Marcel the monkey type projections are weighted in some way, and then all of the counting stats are converted to rates per plate appearance or per inning pitched or per batter face or whatever. And then your playing time analysts, the experts who cover the teams, the individual teams for Baseball HQ, will give their best estimate of what the playing time is going to be, and then you multiply it back out, and that's how you get home runs or RBIs or strikeouts or whatever the case might be. And so that part of the process seems to be um, already have a human element in it. And then you say that you're willing to put your thumb on the scale from time to time. Do you guys ever go back in and say, here are the 40 players that we significantly altered the projections of and see how well you did? You know, I, I haven't done a formal review of it, but I do sort of have a mindset about it. And the mindset is pretty much this. If, you know, the, so I talk about the process that starts with the projections for the forecaster, and that covers, you know, like I said, something like 800, 900 players uh, that, that get the full sort of forecaster treatment and end up with the player boxes in the forecaster. Those projections, I'm pretty loath to touch just because they've gotten that, they've gotten through that process I talked about before. They've gotten those five or six levels of review. You know, a bunch of people have weighed in, and I would need some really compelling evidence to, you know, override all of that. Um, but then there are other players who are outside of those eight or 900 players in the forecaster. I mean, right now I've got, you know, in my projections database right now, I've got something like 2000 players. Obviously they're not all active in the majors right now, but they, you know, they could be. So if somebody who didn't get that forecaster treatment and is still basically being projected by the Marcel, the monkey method with our flavor of it, as you were describing, those are the ones that I will, you know, get more aggressive with because, they haven't been, you know, rinsed and scrubbed and spindled uh, all of through that that advanced process. It gives me more confidence in the number. It's interesting because Jeff and Chris said that uh, people who run these projection systems, if they want to compete with other people running projection system for marketing purposes and so forth, um, have to be more conservative in their projections and actually less willing to make those manual tweaks or to adjust their algorithms to try to, to, to capture some kind of advantage. And we know from uh, what Ron has written about over the years that yeah, pretty much everybody's around 70% and, you, and everybody tweaks to try to get it up to 72 or 73. But they're all pretty much in the same ballpark. The, the difference, Jeff and Chris said, and I think this is an interesting insight, is that the truly valuable projections engine wouldn't be the one that got the same 72, 73, you know, 70% baseline accuracy that everybody got right and three or four percentage points worth that they got right from, from tweaking. The projection system they thought would be the best would be the one that could correctly project the outliers. And I know I feel like I'd rather know the outliers, but is it even possible? You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible or I have not gone down the road of trying to make it possible within the projections engine itself. To me, that's where the actually burping out the values and then having the additional color of the analysis really helps. And I, I, st I stand by the way we do that, where we're the, the upsides, we're, you know, we're in the forecaster process, we've got, you know, we'll publish a projection and then in some, some players we'll slap a, you know, a further upside on them in the commentary. To me, keeping those buckets separate of here's the, you know, here's our best baseline projection and then separately, here's we have some optimism that things could be better or worse and here's what that could look like is a better approach than trying to push the projection, the baseline projection to be something other than a baseline for 
some players. I just I think that just gets way too muddled. We tend to think of these projections as a tool for preseason planning, as you said, and of course that's where a ton of the effort goes in. You you start in October or November getting ready for the forecaster, and then you keep updating and updating and tweaking and getting all these analyses uh, and inputs to get the uh, to get the engine ready for for the drafts. But HQ updates its projections for the rest of the season every day, and I'm wondering what you think, Ray. How forward-looking projections can help users during the season? You know, I think it's. I, I think they're pr- pretty valuable. I, you know, I, I don't go into the custom draft guide and actually run a full valuation for my league all that often in in season, or at least not this deep into the season. I'll do it every. I might do it on a weekend to just see where the some fab targets come out relative to each other. But to, I, I spend a ton of time in player link and just being able to look at a particular player's page and see both their projection and how the projection weighs against what they're doing in season and historically so that you can, with a couple of clicks, actually make judgments about not just whether the player's year-to-date performance is sustainable, but how different is it than what they've done in the past. And then importantly, you know, do you believe in the degree of adjustment or the degree of um, you know compensation that the rest of season projection has compared in weighing that projection versus the historical. I I was looking at um you know somebody who I might talk about later is Tyler Bali and somebody was talking about him in the uh, in our forums and saying, you know, he's you know HQ's been all over him for the last month and I'm you know I'm right at the front of that train. But then the rest of the season projection is pretty tepid. So I went and I was looking at all three of those things, and yeah, it is pretty tepid, but, you know, that's a case where I looked at it and said, you know, I, I, I like the skills that he's showing right now more. You know, I buy into those skills more than the projection engine is right now, so that's a that's a case where I might, you know, go put my thumb on the scale a little bit. Well, Ray, I know uh, this has been super interesting so far, and I know that uh, when you're uh, not running the projections engine and doing that kind of administrator stuff for Baseball HQ, you're still a a fairly prolific writer at the site, and uh, we'll take a break here, maybe get you back and talk about a couple of your recent columns. Sounds great, Patrick. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. But coming up next, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Well, before the season started, Nick, we had two high-profile pitchers who refused to sign contracts and decided to wait for their market to improve. 
Now with the passing of the draft, they don't uh, require any free agent compensation. I'm sorry, they don't require any draft compensation. And so they both signed. On Wednesday, closer Craig Kimbrell inked a multi-year deal with the Cubs. We'll talk about him in a second. Then on Thursday came reports that free agent left-hander Dallas Koikel has agreed to a one-year deal for around $11 million with the Atlanta Braves. So first, Nick, how does Koikel slot into the Atlanta rotation? Well, at this point, it's hard to tell. Atlanta has a very young rotation at this point. Certainly his presence in the rotation will be a steadying influence with his experience. He should be a good mentor for some of the young pitchers. Not sure what uh, who will get bumped. Most likely Kevin Gaussman at this point, who has really been struggling of late, seems like the most logical person to be removed from the rotation. Uh, but at this point, that's really unclear. And they do have some uh, other issues. I was looking at uh, Julio Tehran has been pitching uh, fairly well, but uh, the bottom line results are good, but the skills are not so good. And uh, I think there's some worry about regression there as well. So they also have a a young Max Fried, who's emerged as a largely solid option, but he only threw 111 innings last year. And so his innings could be under monitor. And so could Mike Fultonevich, who has uh, had some uh, injury troubles and might be on... uh, innings watch as well. The signing certainly puts a bit of relief for Atlanta, but doesn't seem to solve all their problems. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. I mean, they've still got, they've got, as you say, a a number of pitchers who are likely to have innings limits. Uh, They've still got young pitchers who are very subject to kind of an up and down kind of performance level. Uh, And they've got a struggling Kevin Gaussman, who can be very, very good when he's on, but uh, the last couple of starts has been way off. So, uh, they certainly have their problems. Keuchel is a good fit for the rotation at this point uh, because they need a steadying uh, veteran influence. Yeah, and I, I mentioned innings monitoring. Soroka also uh, um, has been terrific this year. Uh, I've heard some talk Rookie of the Year. I've even seen some people suggesting he's a candidate for the Cy Young Award. But he only had 56, uh, 56 and a third, I think, last year combined between the majors and the minors. And he's um, obviously uh, asking him to go up to 180 or 200 innings would be quite a stretch. Yeah, it would indeed. I mean, that kind of thing. Uh, certainly he looks very good right now, but with the number of innings he had last year, you would expect him to begin to fade later in the season in spite of his outstanding skills uh, because that arm's going to get tired having only pitched 50 innings a year ago. And that brings us to the question, uh, assuming that Keuchel is going to uh, be a part of the rotation and he's going to be available this weekend in a lot of uh, leagues. I know some leagues allowed him to be drafted uh, in the actual auction or draft process at the start of the year, but many leagues don't allow it if a guy's not on a 25-man roster and he wasn't or even a 40-man roster for that matter. So how is he going to be as a fantasy asset and how should we calibrate our bids? Well, he's likely to be a very big fantasy asset. He's a huge ground baller. Does have a low strikeout rate, strikeout rate around seven per nine innings. Uh, that uh, could be offset by his ability to compile a lot of innings. Uh, skeptic control ratio under three walks per nine since 2018. Uh, that's helped him maintain playable whip levels. Uh, might be a bit of concern that some of his better whip years in the past have been the result of low hit rates, uh, unusually low hit rates for a ground baller. Uh, still, he's been a solid offensive club that has posted the fifth highest OPS in the National League and the six most runs. That run support should set him up for some wins. Uh, On the other hand, the Atlanta bullpen has been a bit unsettled all season uh, to the extent that reports Atlanta also was in on Kimbrell, but Luke Jackson has pitched very well late closing games, including a five-strikeout save on Sunday. So the bottom line is I think Keuchel is definitely roster-worthy in pretty much all formats. 
could be the kind of uh, player worth a significant bid, even maybe an all-in bid. Cy Young winners just don't pop up every day, and never with this much time left in the season. At this point, we don't know when he'll be starting in Atlanta. Has been struck, uh, say, apparently been scheduled to pitch at Triple A Gwinnett on Saturday, uh, and soon, I guess we'll learn quickly after that outing how many more minor league outings the Braves think he needs. I'm going to guess that uh, it'll be one and done in the minor leagues. Uh, he's been pitching, uh, according to news reports, he'd been pitching uh, simulated games every five days for a couple of weeks already. And I know it's not the same as pitching in a game, but they are pretty smart about getting these kinds of things set up. He's a client, of course, of Scott Boris, and they uh, have a lot of infrastructure to try to get guys ready and keep guys ready for the season. And I, if, if he pitches well and comes out of that uh, Saturday start in Gwinnett, without any physical problems uh, and he's not getting shelled of course is the other thing but i wouldn't be at all surprised to see him in the atlanta rotation as early as next uh, wednesday or thursday whatever the next five-day rotation slot is yeah man that's certainly certainly very possible you've got to remember this is a guy who had an era under three in 2014 2015 2017 pitching in the american league um Struggled a bit in 2016, ERA of 4.55. Struggled a bit last year, ERA of 3.74, although better in the second half. So, uh, you know, there's some, some definite value here, especially moving to the National League where he doesn't have the DH to deal with. And I'll tell you what, we say it's just an indication of the kind of quality we're talking about here, Nick, when you say he struggled a bit last year with a 374 ERA. That's a, that's a struggle by his standards, but I know a lot of fantasy baseball teams, including mine, that would welcome a guy who could maybe bring in 115 innings or 110 innings at 374 for an ERA, especially if he keeps his whip low like he has. Yeah, Absolutely. Before we move on to Craig Kimbrell, uh, I was wondering this, uh, I'm just uh, asking you, I know you don't have any insight uh, into the mind of Dallas Koichel, but one of the teams that was supposed to be in on the bidding for, for Koichel was the New York Yankees, who have rotation problems of their own. And they have a no-beard policy, and Dallas Koichel has a pretty luxuriant beard uh, hanging off his uh, ha- off his mug. And I wonder, do you think there's any chance that uh, that he just wasn't going to be willing to shave the beard and uh, rode off the Yankees for that reason? I think it's possible. I, the question becomes at this point, I guess, how much money is the beard worth per year, and would he would he go for it? We don't know if the uh, if the Braves were the highest bidder, but uh, would he dock the Yankees a little bit because he had to shave the beard? That beard is Koichel's trademark, and uh, I'm not at all surprised he went somewhere that he gets to keep it. And he gets to keep $11 million, too, which I read somewhere prorates to about a $20 million contract offer on a per-game basis. So uh, he picked up a couple of million extra over what the what the Astros offered him in, in the offseason. I think they offered him around $18 million for a year, and, and so he's... He's down seven on the uh, actual dollars, but he's up two on the prorated dollars. So I guess uh, we'll see what happens at the end of this year. He'll be one and done, as I said, and then maybe he'll go back to the free agent market and do it all over again. And here's another thought, Nick. A guy his age, he's coming in, he's in, in his young 30s, and he may be looking ahead and think to himself, you know, I wouldn't mind pitching until I was 37 or 38, and a good way to do it would, would be to wait till this time every year. And sign uh, and, and, and miss the <laughs> first few go. weeks, you know? Yeah, there you go. You know, the, the other thing to think about with Corkle, and this is, uh, is you're right, he's, it's a one and done, and he'll be looking for a free agent contract at the end of this year, and there's certainly some motivation there when you know that's, uh, that's coming up. 
Yeah, I'm not a big believer in motivation, uh, those kinds of things, contract years. Uh, I've never seen any proof that, that, that uh, there's an effect. I could be wrong, but I think the guy's a professional athlete. He likes to win. He's not going to go out and give 70% just because he has a five-year contract. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, speaking of uh, free agents and uh, pitchers and signing, Craig Kimbrell also signed. He did get a multi-year deal with the Chicago Cubs on Wednesday. They didn't talk about the financial terms or the length of the contract, so multi-year could be this year and next and see you later we don't know but whatever it is it's good news for the cubs and bad news for anyone who had pedro strope or steve sishek on their fantasy rosters like for example me yeah it is bad news for strope and sishek owners uh, kimber will likely get the bulk of the uh, cubs save opportunities from here on out uh, it's unclear how soon he will assume the closer role uh, like like carco he's not been pitching uh, in the major leagues since the start of the season but um Actually, Matt, this is already uh, clock Sissick, uh, Doc Sissick, all the saves, his save for the rest of the season. Uh, most of Strope's save opportunities have been docked as well. Uh, Tom Kebert says they will slide into setup roles. Uh, Kimball deepens the Chicago Cubs bullpen considerably, and considering that what they're calling him in for is one inning uh, every few nights, uh, probably he'll be ready sooner than Koikel is. Actually, I read a story uh, on the internet somewhere yesterday that said they thought maybe three weeks does that sound like it makes any sense doesn't make any sense to me if i were the cubs i'd want him in there sooner than that uh but uh, it just depends on what kind of shape he's in and they should know that that quickly enough but uh i would not pay him that kind of money uh and uh wait three weeks uh, the cubs need him in there as soon as they can get him well, for all of the hullabaloo about Craig Kimbrell, he hasn't been the real lights-out, parties-over kind of closer for the last couple of years. No, he hasn't been. He struggled with walks during 2016, a control ratio of 5.1 walks per nine innings. Uh, then uh, 2018, a control ratio of 4.5 and 5.9 walks per nine in the second half last season. So those are things that, uh, that, that are probably of some concern, but he's still a strikeout machine. Fastball velocity up to 97 or better each of the last five years. Uh, the lowest Dom he's ever had over that span was 13.2 strikeouts per nine in 2015. And those strikeouts have arrived him to be a very successful closer uh, to make up for the walks that uh, happen here and there, averaging almost 39 saves per season over the last five years. I think that's accurate. Uh, strikeouts will will solve a lot of problems for any pitcher. Uh, you mentioned a walk here and there. I think it might be a walk here and there and there and there and there. But still, if a guy's striking out basically a, a batter and a half every inning, he's going to get himself out of a lot of trouble. Yeah, very definitely. Staying with pitchers, Milwaukee recalled right-hander Jimmy Nelson from AAA on Wednesday and optioned reliever Taylor Williams to AAA. Nelson has been a favorite of experts, Nick, for the last few seasons and really hasn't done a lot. Uh, he was a $15 earner in 2017, but the year before he was minus $6, then he was only plus 4 in 2015, and he missed all of last season with shoulder surgery. Tom Kephart was on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Is Jimmy Nelson really all that significant as a fantasy asset? Yeah, well, you didn't mention that getting 12 wins helped him in the 15, that $15 season. Uh, you know, I don't know. Jimmy Nelson experienced multiple setbacks during his recovery from that serious shoulder surgery you mentioned. He missed uh, all of last season, all of 2018. Uh, was in AAA trying to get back to form, but actually struggled finding the plate in AAA. 12 walks in 24 innings, although he did pile up 29 strikeouts. And now he's back in the Milwaukee Big League rotation. Uh, replacing the right-hander uh, Hula Chassin, who was recently placed on the IL with a lower back strain. 
Uh, Milwaukee is hoping that Nelson pitches well enough to solidify a rotation spot. Uh, I guess my, uh, uh, having been a, a former Nelson owner, my uh, reaction would be, eh, maybe. Yeah, and this is maybe the uh, the sort of silver lining in the cloud here, Nick, might be with all the attention being focused on Dallas Coyco, you might be able to land Jimmy Nelson with a real low bid because everybody's going to be throwing all their chips into that Coyco pot or the Kimbrel pot if he's available as well. So uh, depending on how you feel about Jimmy Nelson, of course, it may be a $1 bid is too much. Uh, his, first stat, his first start, I should say, did not go well. No, that could be the understatement of this podcast. Uh, he got a start against Miami, one of the weakest offenses in the, in the league, and he made them look like the 1927 Yankees. He got nine outs, gave up four hits, three doubles, a home run, three walks, four earned runs, and another unearned run. So a 12.0 ERA after one start. Uh, faced 17 Marlins hitters, got five first pitch strikes. So that, that was not what you'd be wanting from uh, Jimmy Nelson on your fantasy team. Uh, what's more interesting was there was a pitcher that should be more interested in that game, and that's Sandy Alcantara of Miami, was pretty sparingly owned after a slow start, but after seven innings of one-run, five-hit ball with five strikeouts against Milwaukee, ERA is now down to 3.80. Still walks too many, but he's showing signs of getting the plate command in his last five games, with four of them having only one or two walks. I have to say it surprises me that his ownership is as low as it is. Sandy Alcantara could be a real get, I think. Remember that name and maybe not so much Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, I think you're right. In San Diego, the Padres place left-hander Matt Strom on the 10-day injured list on Wednesday. He has a left rib strain. They also optioned a left-hander named Brad Week to AAA and recalled right-hander Cal Quantrill and activated relief pitcher Miguel Diaz from the 60-day IL. He had a knee problem. Jock Thompson covers the Padres for playing time today. A lot of things going on here, Nick. Yeah, definitely a lot of things going on. Uh, Strom projects to miss uh, nearly the minimum 10 days, uh, maybe two weeks, but not a whole lot of time. Uh, he just came off his worst start of 2019, a 7-run, 4.1 innings pitch performance against, also against Miami. Uh, that spiked his ERA from 3.21 to 4.03, uh, but the injury may have been a factor, maybe not, hard to tell. Uh, the issue with Strom is workload. He's uh, been mostly a reliever in his big league career. He threw just 61 innings in 2018, and he's just an inning away from matching that total already this year. Uh, and now as we head into the season middle months, we expect the Padres to begin managing innings for their young starting pitchers. Uh, Quantrill, the son of uh, former big league pitcher Paul Quantrill, returned to the rotation on Wednesday, had a second straight good start with five innings pitched, two runs, seven strikeouts, no walks. Our team analysts are calling for Quantrill to keep that rotation slot for a while. Yeah, but... Cal Quantrill is actually a Canadian citizen. He was born while his dad was pitching for Toronto, so that's always of interest to us here north of the border. I mentioned Miguel Diaz coming back from knee trouble. Uh, Where does Jock say he fits into the situation? Diaz was recovering from surgery to fix a torn uh, lateral meniscus in his right knee. Uh, Brings an interesting mid-90s velocity, but issues with home runs and walks are likely keeping him in the bullpen shuttle uh, until he improves. Well, some more sad news in Philadelphia and for fantasy owners of Andrew McCutcheon, again, like me, he's out for the season. He tore his ACL on Monday. Uh, the Phillies had just traded to acquire outfielder first baseman Jay Bruce from the Mariners, and they recalled outfield prospect Adam Hazley from AAA. So, again, a lot of moving parts here. Phil Hertz covering the story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. Where do we think this Playing Time situation ends up? McCutcheon had been an asset to most fantasy teams. He was only hitting 257, but on-base percentage was 378. 
uh, OPS of 834. So definitely producing. Uh, his roster spot goes to Hazley, the eighth overall pick to the 2017 draft. Hazley has spent most of 2019 in AA, but had 27 plate appearances in AAA before the call-up. Overall was batting 275 with 827 OPS. Uh, covered in the uh, today's call-ups, uh, today's uh, daily call-ups column. So take a look a look there for information on Hazley. Uh, Phil also expects added playing time for Jay Bruce and for Scott Kingery, who could now be seeing more time in the outfield than at the infield positions he occupied periodically earlier in the season. Bruce is having kind of a down year for batting average at just 233. He strikes out way too much, uh, about 30% of the time. But uh, 17 home runs and OPS near 900. He'll be an interesting fab target as a crossover in, in only formats and might have even been available in some other formats because of the low batting average. You and I talked last week, Nick, about uh, Kingery being already in line for a playing time boost because of the administrative suspension of Odubel Herrera. Any additional news on that front? Well, uh, Major League Baseball announced that Herrera's leave will be extended at least until June the 17th. Uh, Matt Breen, who covers the Phils for the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, reported on Thursday that the team is removing banners and pictures of Herrera from their ballpark. Uh, the team has asked his name be struck from all-star voting. Uh, Breen has said the feeling around the club is that these could be the signals that the club is drawing up divorce papers, as he called it. So Odubel Herrera, once his suspension is over, assuming it is over this season because uh, all sports leagues are cracking down on these domestic violence issues because they make the leagues look bad, um, if Odubel Herrera does get uh, away from this suspension, he may be looking for a job, and he'll probably find one. I mean, you know, as as much as we might like to think that all these guys are upright citizens who are running these teams, uh, you know, if Odubel Herrera is going to win you three games, hard to say no. Finally, Nick, a follow-up to another story we mentioned last week. The Brewers, somewhat surprisingly, recalled Travis Shaw from the minors, and they sent down top prospect second baseman Keston Hayura, who they had just called up, and they he fetched a, a lot of fab money that seems to have got flushed with Hayura being demoted. Well, yeah, that's for sure. We thought that Shaw might be the odd man out as he's really been struggling this year, was struggling uh, in his rehab, uh, batting uh, 169, sporting a 5.60 OPS, uh, contact rate, hard contact index, expected batting average, power index, expected power index, base PV, all at career worst at this point for Shaw, although in a relatively small sample of 135 at-bats. And Instead, they've decided to play Shaw and let uh, Herrera get more seasoning. Uh, Tom Kepler reported that Herrera had some key hits for Milwaukee, five home runs. But the, the key stat that may have worried them was a 0-1-4 I ratio. Uh, not the kind of solid skill set he'd been displaying in the minors. And the kind of thing that at the major league level could quickly get exploited. Uh, fielding was also a bit shaky at times. Okay, so Hayera goes back to the minors. They bring Shaw back to the majors. How are they going to organize all the playing time here? Shaw goes back to second base with Hayera gone. Mike Mustakas returns to third base. Uh, Mustakas on the way to one of the best seasons of his career, despite a couple of broken fingers already this season. Uh, production is fully supported by skills. 80% contact rate, 121 hard contact index, 151 power index, uh, and that's supported by a 144 expected power index. So steady veteran infielder Hernan Perez will return to being the primary backup for both of them, and Iroh will wait for his next opportunity. Uh, he homered in his first game back in the minors, uh, and we, we expect, I actually expect, that something's going to happen and he'll be back in the majors before too long. You know what I can't help thinking in the back of my mind is, 
I wonder if Milwaukee wouldn't uh, surrender Keston Hiura in a trade to shore up their playoff run. Uh, they they have big expectations in Milwaukee, I think, and uh, it looks like there's a combination here of things going on. Namely, they don't trust rookies in those pressure situations as much as they trust even a veteran like Shaw who's struggling. They figure he's going to come out of it. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm just speculating here, and I could be dead wrong, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them dangle Hiura as a potential trade target. That's a possibility. The other possibility, of course, is they give Shaw a very short leash to see to see what he can do. Uh, got two hits in his first game back, uh, then got two strikeouts in his second game back with no hits. So, uh, I, I my guess is the leash on Shaw is not going to be very long at this point, but they will give him another opportunity. And good teams that win championships have good fielding. And as you mentioned, Keston Hiura was not uh, really impressive with the glove. That's very true. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week. All right, thank you. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go now to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Hey, Jock. Hey, PD. Good to be here. We'll start in Cleveland where right-hander Carlos Carrasco was placed on the 10-day injured list on Wednesday because he has what they're calling a blood condition. And uh, they haven't said a lot about it, but I've been reading in other places. This does not sound good. Uh, team also optioned outfielder Greg Allen to Columbus, recalled a couple of pitchers from AAA as well. First of all, what's going on with Carrasco as far as you know? Well, other than confirming that he's going to be out indefinitely, the, the Indians and Carrasco are staying pretty quiet about this, which sounds serious and obviously far Far be it from us to speculate any more than that right now, other than to say we hope he recovers quickly. But uh, that his return, his return just isn't reliable, I guess, from what we know and the rest of the season. Uh, who knows what, what what's going to happen here uh, with respect to where Cleveland uh, goes from goes from here. The only good news is that Mike Clevenger, who's just made two starts all season due to a strained upper back muscle, he made his first. Rehab start at AAA on Thursday night. The results weren't great. He gave up four runs and two walks over two innings. But he's returning, and he struck out four batters. And uh, Clevenger had actually whiffed 22 hitters over his first 12 innings this year before he went down in mid-April. And he didn't allow a run. Uh, obviously, Clevenger owners have to hope for no lingering effects from this back injury. But this this projects uh, as, a, as a, a nice shot in the arm for both uh, um Clevenger owners in Cleveland, uh, despite the, the 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 problems with uh, with Carrasco here, and of course Shane Bieber's been pitching very well as well, and they're expecting to get Corey Kluber back, not right away, but certainly not uh, way at the end of the season from his uh, broken arm that he took off that line drive. But I have a question for you, Jock. Here, with the way Cleveland's playing, they're rapidly falling out of touch in the in the American League Central because the Twins are the best team in the league, and I think they were last time I checked, they were fourteen or fifteen games behind. And when you look at that situation, you look at the rotation now losing uh, basically its anchor or two anchors with Kluber and Carrasco both out and Trevor Bauer not pitching really, really well. Do you think there's a chance here that they just blow this thing up and start dealing guys, uh, specifically um, Trevor Bauer? Yeah, I, I think they might wait a, wait a month, uh, maybe not, um, but, but you really hit on something here. If you just looked at Cleveland's pitching right now, you'd think, well, they, you know, I mean, Bauer's struggling, okay, but they still have him. They have Bieber. They're getting Clevenger back. They've had good performances from Plezak, and who knows, Corey Kluber is coming back in August. We don't know what version is coming back. Uh, he was pretty bad at the beginning of the season. 
But the problem is the offense. The offense is just, it's just pulseless right now. And I just don't see any team with that kind of an offense getting into the playoffs right now, particularly the way Minnesota is just roaring right now. Right. And and of course, we know that uh, the wildcard team is almost certainly going to come from the American League East. It'll either be uh, one of the three good teams in that division will win the division and one of the other two will, or maybe both of the other two for that matter, will take the wildcard spots. So there's not a lot of pathways to the playoffs for, for Cleveland which makes me think that maybe we're going to see some some heavy-duty trading going on as they try to rebuild and pack in some new prospects and stuff like that. It certainly will be something to watch. And if you're in an American League-only format and you lose players who get traded out of the league uh, and you happen to be a Trevor Bauer owner, you might start uh, banging around some uh, trade offers and see what somebody will give you for Trevor Bauer because I believe, and this is just speculation, but it's informed speculation, Jock, I think he could be on the way out. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either. He's he's one of those kind of prickly individuals who can occasionally wear out a welcome with his outspokenness, and he hasn't been pitching that well recently. Obviously, he's still he's still better than most starters in baseball right now, given the nature of pitching. But uh, I think you're right. I think he's an obvious candidate to be traded. In Kansas City, they placed their breakout star this year, third baseman Hunter Dozier, onto the 10-day injured list on Monday. He has a chest injury. They made the move retroactive, so it's not going to be too much longer before it's over. Matt Dodge covered this story for BaseballHQ.com in playing time today. Uh, First of all, what do you know about Hunter Dozier, and what are the Royals doing in the meantime? Well, I know that I wish I owned Hunter Dozier. I was looking at his numbers for the first time, giving them a hard look, and uh, Seriously, a, a 987 OPS through 211 plate appearances. That's got to be one of the biggest surprises of 2018. Uh, but like you said, it sounds like he's going to come back quickly. Uh, if he doesn't come back this weekend against Chicago shortly afterward, um, in his place, uh, the Royals been using Chesler Cuthbert and Kelvin Gutierrez at third base. Cuthbert's actually been pretty productive since his call. He's 9 for 24 with three home runs, uh, which has also earned him some at-bats at first place uh, in place of struggling Ryan Hearn. Um, but this this is probably a blip. Cuthbert is up there hacking. He hasn't drawn a walk yet. Uh, doesn't have that much in his minor league history that suggests he'll continue doing this kind of damage but then again neither did Dozier so so who knows and a lot of us are just shooting in the dark Uh, like most minor leaguers Cuthbert was actually on pace for a career best home run year and he's never had too much trouble making contact so he could continue to take a uh, first base at bats away from Hearn even when Dozier gets back uh, until he stops hitting. Right, and he's going to have to really stop hitting to have stopped hitting as much as Ryan Hearn. Uh, 192 batting averages and getting the job done. He has a few home runs, but uh, they, Chesler Cuthbert has paths to playing time. But what about Gutierrez? They recalled him. He hit something like 280 and 60 or so at bats earlier this year. Yeah, that was kind of a mirage. It was it was hit rate fuel. He's a different animal than Cuthbert. He has a, a he's shown a good batting eye in the minors, but he's not showing much power anywhere. And he actually struggled to make contact at the uh, at the major league level. I suspect he's going to get sent down when Dozier returns. Well, we talked about the Minnesota Twins and their incredible offense so far this year, and they're getting good pitching as well. Uh, 
and the remarkable thing about their offense, Jock, has been they've been doing it without Nelson Cruz, who was kind of their big off-season signing as a DH. He's been on the injured list, and he's uh, been activated. He was activated on Monday. I assume he steps back in, but gosh, uh, with their uh, offense firing on all cylinders, what are they going to do with, uh, with uh, Nelson Cruz? Yeah, this is obviously good news for cruise owners, but beyond that, I think, like you've said, the most interesting thing here is how Minnesota didn't miss a beat at all with Cruz gone. They extended their lead. They, they've run out different lineups every night and, and different DHs and, and showed off some real significant depth day in and day out. Uh, um, they, they have a lot of productive names in that DH slot, including the, the player they sent down, uh, Arias, the, the infielder who makes so much contact, and he was 9 for 24. Um, he looks like he's going to be a, uh, 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 competing for future at bats down the road. Um, and it's not to say that, that, uh, that, that Cruz isn't going to get his at bats. He will, but at 39, uh, he's probably going to get, uh, plenty of off days this season. Uh, he still looks productive. He's, he's got an 850 OPS through 134 at bats before he went on the DL and he remains their primary DH option. But, but right now I don't think any American League club has more offensive mix and match depth than the Twins do. I thought Arias was an interesting guy while he was up. He, he played second, he played third, he played short, and as you mentioned, he did some DHing. Uh, 24 at-bats, you can hardly uh, you know, commit to the future with that small of a sample, but uh, I think Arias could be a guy to keep an eye on, and now that he's been sent down, uh, depending on your league rules, this might be a guy that makes a decent stash. Yeah, I tend to agree. Obviously, in a draft over league, uh, he's going to need some injuries to get back up there and, and, and get the playing time he got while Cruz was gone. But uh, I liked him, too. I watched him play. He made great contact. He made good decisions on the field. He was a lot of fun to watch. And their other jack-of-all-trades, uh, Wilson Williams Astudillo, has not been hitting well, so uh, he could be the guy who's the odd man out, although he does have some catcher eligibility and they use him in that role, or they did use him in that role. They haven't been lately uh, because of the great performances of Mitch Garver. It's June... Usually that's the start of trade season in fantasy baseball, but also in real baseball. And in real baseball, it kicked off as we'd expect. Jerry DePoto of Seattle finally got a, another deal done, uh, moved Jay Bruce and his contract to get back a low minors infielder, just a salary dump, basically. Uh, Rod Truesdell covered this story. What happens with the Mariners playing time now that Jay Bruce is no longer part of the picture? Well, Rod noted that, uh, at least in the short term, Dan Vogelback is, is going to get a lot more at-bats at DH. Uh, but Vogelback's hitting just 111 and 36 at-bats versus lefties, and he's actually hit the skids batting-wise uh, since that big start. Uh, the power and patience have held up. He's got value, particularly against right-handed pitchers. Um, but um, the, the Mariners are also going to get Ryan Healy back. Uh, they've got uh, Edwin Encarnacion uh, playing out of position at first base. He should be at DH. Uh, as long as those two guys are on the team, uh, I'm not sure Vogelback or Healy are, are going to be assured of regular playing time. That The Mariners need to keep playing Encarnacion to move him. Um, they're not going anywhere right now. I think uh, Vogelback and um, Healy owners should hope that trade happens as well. 
Well, I can see uh, Healy owners looking for a trade, but I can't see a lot of major league teams being super interested. I think the situation might be a little bit different for Encarnacion. He's having a pretty good year. He's especially uh, strong with the OBP and showing that his usual power. He's on track, I think, the last time I looked for 30-plus homers. That'll play in a lot of teams. Uh, I, I can see Encarnacion being the guy who leaves. And as for Vogelback, another good OBP guy. But other than that, uh, Jock, he, he looks like one of those hitters who gets ahead of the the league a little bit but the league catches up pretty quick yeah the bottom really fell out of that performance in may um i i think he hit below 200 uh, the power never wavered the power is still there i mean he's a big guy he doesn't have it if you watch him he doesn't have a lot of rotation with his arms his wrists but his his body just rotates the zone and 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 when he gets a hold of one it travels but uh, i don't see him ever hitting for uh for batting average, and he is going to have to walk an awful lot and hit at least 230, 240 to uh, to maintain that value. It'll be interesting to see where he goes from here. Finally, Jock in Houston, uh, they had a lot of position player injuries. Uh, a lot of their finest hitters have been on the shelf, and some of them remain there. But the Astros now may also have a problem in their pitching rotation. Uh, after a fine debut versus Texas back in mid-May, uh, replacing Colin McHugh, uh, the prospect Corbin Martin has looked really awful and was finally sent packing back to AAA. You projected that this was going to happen in your playing time tomorrow space. Uh, what does Houston do now as far as their rotation is concerned? Yeah, this wasn't that difficult to see coming, given how bad Martin was pitching after that first start. Uh, he had four more starts after that. He couldn't he couldn't go beyond the fourth inning in any of them. He walked 11. He gave up 12 runs in 14 innings. Um, given that McHugh is still shelved and Forrest Whitley still on the AL, Houston's next move was fairly projectable as well. They've announced that uh, rookie Framber Valdez is now in the rotation. Uh, and it's not that Valdez is any great shakes. In reality, he's more of a swingman, long reliever type whose track record suggests a four or five inning limit on his starts. But but he's not without skills. He pitches down in the zone. He relies on a big ground ball rate and does a nice job in suffocating home runs, which these days is, is pretty significant. And if you look at his two-year small sample in Houston, he's outpitched his expected ERA nicely. Uh, he was he had a 219 ERA last year in 37 innings. This year he's sitting at 312 through 26 innings. But he struggles with control and he pitches to contact. So they're the kind of stats that nowadays make you want to go, huh, uh, how, how is he going to do from here? He's not going to get big strikeouts. He's not likely to help you with your whip or wins. Seems like the Astros are going to essentially use his start as a bullpen-centric game without an opener. And, and they have the personnel and bullpen depth to pull it off for a little while until they can figure something else out or until McHugh comes back. They certainly wouldn't be the first team to try to figure out ways to cobble together nine innings out of five guys. Uh, I noticed Oakland's been doing it more recently, a couple of other teams as well, partly because they think it works, partly because they have no other choice. Uh, this Houston situation, is there any chance Forrest Whitley is going to come back from the injured list and be an impact pitcher? Well, sure, there's a chance. I mean, we're, we're heading into June, July, August. We have three months to go, but he was awful his first couple of months. His ERA was, I think, something near 12 or 14 over about 26 innings. He's now on the DL with shoulder fatigue. Um, it, it, what seemed like his his big debut year just um, – it, it got a lot more questionable given his performance and his health right now. Um, there's no certainty with that at all. It could happen. We have three months left, but he's got a long way to go. 
So for right now, they're not exactly desperate. Uh, Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Brad Peacock at the top of the list. Uh, what about Josh James as a possibility to step up from the uh, bullpen to the rotation? Yeah, that's another possibility. Again, Houston has great major uh, MLB-ready pitching depth. Uh, James hasn't been great this year. His ERA is 4.93, although his expected ERA 3.83 is a lot better uh, a lot better than that. We're seeing a lot of that with pitchers this year, and, and James's problem has been the home run ball. He's given up uh, 1.8 home runs per nine innings. Um, he's going to have to improve on that, but that could certainly happen. Uh, he's been up uh, all, all season. Uh, he's striking out a lot of hitters. Uh, he's striking out 14 batters per nine innings. Um, it'll be interesting to see what combination Houston uses to handle that number five rotation slot. Well, in addition to the home runs, which have also somewhat depressed his strand rate, it's under 70%. He's also got a problem with walks. He's walking 5.7 per nine, and that's not getting the job done. Uh, it, the question is, can a guy like Josh James, who fires the ball with such intensity, ever get that uh, control under control? And this is what's fascinating. If you look at Framber Valdez and and uh, Josh James, they both have control problems. Uh, Framber Valdez is walking four and a half batters per nine. Um, Josh James is is, is walking five point seven per nine. The difference between them is the home runs. And Framber Valdez is throwing ground balls. Josh James is not throwing ground balls. Well, that does make a difference. So this is a terrific team. This is a well-organized team. It's going places. Their bullpen has been really good uh, for the most part this year, except when my guys go in there. Will Harris uh, seems to get beat up every time he goes out there, and I have him active. But uh, this is a well-put-together team, and any pitcher who finds his way into the rotation there stands to pick up some wins. They score a lot of runs. They've got that solid bullpen. The question is, out of the very many candidates that they have, who's going to be the guy who gets the call? Yeah, that's right. And that's why there's so much discussion about wins being such a crapshoot in Roto and, and a lot of formats changing their their strategies. I know both of my two keeper leagues are, one of them changed from, from wins this year to inning, innings pitched. My other one is doing the same thing next year. Um, Wins are, wins are a tough call. You just you, um, there, There's so many pitchers being used nowadays, and, uh, and starters are going fewer and fewer innings. You don't know where the wins are going to come from. And well, and especially as they start using openers more and these bulk guys and bullpen games, it's going to be very tough. Uh, I don't know how I feel about getting rid of wins as a category because I like the fact that it introduces a certain amount of luck. Uh, I, uh, I think maybe wins is a better category than innings because, you know, you could win the category with some pretty bad innings, although that would punish you in the ratio category, so maybe it makes more sense. Certainly something to think about, Jock, uh, as always. Jock Thompson providing us stuff with, to think about. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis, a regular columnist at the site, and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager and columnist from BaseballHQ.com. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say Baseball HQ is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Roto Gaming column, analyst Greg Pyron looks at some interesting April-May starting pitcher splits. 
In the Minor Leagues Call-Up Report, Baseball HQ scouting analysts update more top prospects getting the call to the bigs, including Colorado right-hander Peter Lambert, Philadelphia outfielder Adam Hazley, St. Louis catcher Andrew Nisner, and other top call-ups. And in the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, why, little old me, I get to shine my analytical spotlight on Toronto right-handed starter Marcus Stroman. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, like player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, like news updates in Playing Time Today and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow, like buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, and like our fantasy market analysis and injury analysis, which comes three times a week. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, like daily dashboards and pitcher matchups tools, and like leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. And there's even more. If you add it all up, Baseball HQ gives you the content and tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back. Let's keep rolling, Patrick. I mentioned uh, before the break that you are a prolific writer and have been for a long time at Baseball HQ. In addition to your administrative duties, uh, you wrote a GM's office column about the NFBC second chance drafts. Uh, if people haven't heard about this, fantasy owners were uh, called into NFBC and given a chance to draft for a season that would start on June 1st. The drafts were around Memorial Day. The usual NFBC rules, it was 5x5 five five using batting average, not OBP, 12-team mixed leagues. Before we get to the outcomes and your comments, you opened by describing the preseason ADPs as both a blessing and a curse. What did you mean by that? ADPs are you know, a super powerful tool. I remember back when we used to get ADPs from mock drafts and you know they were sort of all but useless because you never knew how many teams were getting auto-drafted or how long people stayed in the draft before they logged off. And it ended up just being a... Uh, you know, there, you, there was so much noise in the system that you couldn't learn a lot from it. And then, you know, the NFC in particular and a couple other sites came along and started publishing, you know, holding drafts so early in the pre, in the preseason and then publishing the ADPs from drafts where people had, you know, skin in the game and money on the line that, you know, this data was fantastic. But fantastic, I should say, as far as, you know, sort of getting the noise out of the system and being, you know, and being your know, referenceable data. But, you know, but my knock on them is sort of that the NFBC data in particular gets to be a little echo chambery and that, you know, it's a, sometimes it's a lot of the same people participating in the early drafts and then the early drafts happen and then suddenly, as soon as the ADPs appear, they're gospel, even though the sample size is small at first and then the denominator grows so quickly, they run so many drafts that by, you know, mid-January, the ADPs are, you know, almost cast in stone and it takes a takes an awful lot for somebody to move up the boards. So, um, you know, there, there still ends up being some noise in the system where some stuff you've got to account for. Uh, the tools of, with the ADP have gotten better with that, where you can do, like, date range selects and that sort of thing. But, you know, it still ends up being sort of an echo chamber for the site the site you're participating in. So, you know, the valuable data, but, you know, it always has to be caveated, I guess. 
Yeah, I've always thought that the fact that some of these uh, ADP engines end up being the the driving force in the auto pick things, where a guy misses his pick and that and the player is automatically selected at an ADP that has kind of been predetermined by all the other ADPs, and it's it is a bit self-referential. Uh, something else I've always liked about ADPs is I like to see the high and the low. Because I, I'm always curious about outliers, getting back to that part of the conversation. And I like to see, you know, why did this guy get picked four rounds earlier by one guy in all of, uh, in all of these drafts or, or, you know, a handful of guys. And those are the guys I'm going to look into more. It's, it's almost like comparing uh, just dollar value projections before the year from various sources and finding the outliers. Uh, this time, Ray, you said you thought the blessings greatly outweighed the curses. Uh, I think I know why, but why? Yeah, so to me, the you know a lot of the things I, that I was complaining about just a minute ago with the ADPs didn't apply to this Memorial Day weekend contest because they ran, I think it was 15 drafts, and they ran them over the course of five days. So there wasn't enough time for that echo chamber effect to happen, and you know, there weren't participants who had you know, more than one or you know, probably maybe two or three teams. So it was a nice cross-section of different people with different opinions. And so, you know, there wasn't this thing where, you know, somebody set the ADP in the draft in November and it took until February for, like you said, somebody reaching for a guy by five rounds to to wash out. This was about sort of the ADPs are much more pure, much more, um, you know, much cleaner data to me um, just because of the, you know, sort of condensed nature of the contest. So I thought I was I was super excited when they, they published these ADPs and I was like, I got to go slice these up and see what we can learn from them. And that was kind of the impetus for the column. And how did you organize your analysis? So I started with the top of the draft just because everyone's always interested in that. You know, we have a pretty bad hit rate historically on picking first rounders, you know, about we only tend to get about 35% of them quote unquote right every year. So I wanted to see that, you know, these guys in these Memorial Day drafts had a great piece of information that we don't have in March. They had two months of in-season performance available to them. So I was curious as to how they use that information and how many of the sort of March top 20 ADP guys were still there and who jumped in and how high. Um, so I, I, I used three metrics. I used the, um, the ADPs from May, the ADPs from March, and the actual dollars earned for the year to date to try to see, you know, try to tease out sort of what was the most important factor for the people who were drafting. As you said, you started with the top two rounds. What were your first reactions? You know, I, I think my, my my first takeaway was that I'm not sure that people, you know, and it's funny because people who were participating in these drafts certainly participated in March drafts too. And I'm not sure how much they how much weight they put on the in-season data. It seemed like maybe there was a little too much of a skew back toward the preseason values. And maybe that's appropriate. Maybe it's a case of people looking at, you know, Chris Sale's a great example where he still went in, uh, you know, just outside of the first round. He went in the second pick 16 in these drafts. And, you know, he his but his earnings this year are, you know, I think right around, you know, ranked like 200th or something like that. But so much of that was, a bad April, which has turned into a good May, and sure, his record is one and seven, but those stats from opening day till June first didn't count. So for the rest of the season, sure, taking Chris Sale as a top starter now that all those health questions have been answered seemed very reasonable. On the other hand, 
you know, Jose Ramirez went, uh, he went pick 24 in the ADP after being, uh, you know, sort of a mid-first rounder back in March. And after he's hit 210 and had so many struggles over the course of the first two months with little sign of that ending or little explanation as to what's wrong and the team context in Cleveland getting much, much worse, that, that pick seemed less justifiable to me. So it was, you know, there's always several factors in play here, but those are just a couple of the things that jumped out to me when I, uh, when I looked at it, the, um, you know, it, it was fascinating. I could have written a couple of thousand words on this. I was surprised that so many players were taken in the first two rounds who are not anywhere near first round value year to date as well. I mean, I sort of get Trey Turner and Francisco Lindor. They were hurt and they're top talents and we can all say, oh, now they're back and they're going to start producing at the kind of rate we expect. And since April and May don't count, that's okay. But uh, some of these guys, yeah, you're right. Uh, Three pitchers were taken in the top 24 who are way outside the top 100 in year to date value. You mentioned Chris Sale, but Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom are both outside the top 100 and yet here they are in the top 24 of these uh, average draft positions what did you make of these pitchers uh, sale scherzer and degrom still being so near the top despite their obvious struggles so far yeah sales you know like i said sales seemed not unreasonable to me and scherzer and degrom are <coughs> i mean there's a glass half empty glass half full thing going on there right because unlike sale we don't really have you know any physical concerns and yet that's both good and bad news. They're they're presumably healthy, but they're all but they've also clearly been somewhat less effective, less valuable than in the past. So without a sort of smoking gun explanation, and without sort of a you know real heel turn as far as you know very recent performance, you know I, there's still some unquantified risk there. And sure, there you know it might just be noise and those guys will be just fine for the end for, for the rest of the season to return that value but it's uh you know i'm not sure well i, I guess the common theme looking at all of these uh, all of these um picks is you know I, clearly there's a lot of questions about how people are quantifying risk and there's some risk with degrom and scherzer that we find out something later on, or that just, there, there's a there's an underlying explanation for what they're doing to date that means the performances are going to continue. Another guy that I uh, noticed right away, 101st in year-to-date value, again in part because of injury, but Gary Sanchez, ADP of 22, that's even higher than he was uh, in the preseason. Yeah, and if anything, you know, strategically, I I, I didn't do these drafts so I didn't have to prep for them but it seemed to me that you know there's been some chatter and you know some people have been talking in our forums and on Twitter a little bit how you know the catching position has actually gotten a little bit better this year you know you mentioned Garver earlier and there there are some real pockets of serviceable value in the mid to end game of the catcher pool to me there's even less of a reason to pay for Gary Sanchez at this pick than there was in March. And yeah, sure, he's healthy now and he's smacking the ball, which is great. But, you know, there's still got to be durability concerns there. And I'm not sure that from a, just from a team construction point of view and again, from a you know risk calculation, I that I'd want to start with Sanchez as opposed to taking, I don't know, uh, you know, Chris Bryant, who went to, who went to pick after him, and then coming back with uh, Garver or any one of that class of catcher in you know fifteen more rounds or something like that. 
Yeah, I thought it was weird too because not only injury risk, but there's a batting average question in those leagues. Uh, 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 there's obviously going to be no stolen bases provided. Uh, it creates a lot of roster management issues to me, uh, especially at that high of a pick. Uh, you also did an analysis of the players who have risen the most from March to May. Uh, four players, uh, rookies Austin Riley, Mike Soroka, and Michael Chavis. Uh, and new closer Hector Neris in Philadelphia, these guys weren't even taken in March and they didn't have ADPs. And we can certainly understand jumps by Josh Bell, who jumped from 224 to 31. I thought he could have gone higher. Pete Alonso was 204 in the preseason, 65. That's a, a playing time certainty thing. But what common themes did you see in the names on these risers lists? Yeah, you mentioned the playing time certainty. That certainly seemed like a common theme. And then a bunch of the guys on this list you know, were in some type of job battle or had some sort of muddled playing time situation uh, back in the spring. And obviously that's been answered favorably. In most cases, these guys just went and flat out, you know, seized the job with their performance. You know, Fran Mill Reyes is a great example of that. You know, there was so much talk in the preseason about how San Diego, San Diego was going to find at bats for their for those five outfielders. But when Reyes hits the right way Reyes hits and he's got what, 19 or 20 home runs now, he, he just has to play. So, you know, he, he's answered that and, you know, he's going to continue. Um, and, you know, that's now that he's got the playing time and the power established, you know, his ADP jumps quite a bit. That's uh, certainly understandable. Uh, the other bucket of guys who struck me were the guys who have just been flat performance gainers, guys who we knew had jobs but have just been much better than we thought. And, you know, you mentioned Bell. He's one of those. Uh, Matt Boyd's another. Shane Green have, w was probably flagged as, like, the worst – quote-unquote established closer in the majors, and he's been terrific. Uh, Wilson Contreras with the Cubs. Uh, you know, Yohan Makata is another one. But, you know, in some sense, those are guys who, you know, if the performance stands up, I would want to go back and look at, like, late in the year or in next year's forecaster because they're just straight performance projection misses. And that they either, and it might not be a projection miss in the sense that maybe they went and, you know, changed something or the pitcher learned a new pitch or someone refined a plate approach or showed skills growth. But they're, they're, they're gain, they didn't gain because they picked up jobs. They can't, they gained just because they got better at their jobs. And that, you know, intellectually, that just fascinates me. You also did a part of your analysis, Ray, where you looked at the first 10 rounds, uh, 120 picks, and found players who were taken despite year-to-date value outside the top 200. What are the themes on this list? So this was fat. This was the cool conclusion that I came up with. You know, the, the list of people who were taken in the top 120 but had returned worse than top 200 to date. Um, and in some cases, way worse than top 200, is like an all-star team of name value. And, you know, certainly there are some hurt guys there, like Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, some underperformers like Noah Syndergaard, um, some guys who have been hurt but we think will come back soon. William Mike Clevenger's due back any day now. Uh, Jose Altuve was out but wasn't supposed to be out for long at the time of this draft. But this list of you know 20 names or so that I came up with is, like like I said, like an all-star team of name recognition. But then when you go spin it the other way and look at people who seem like they were drafted too low based on their year-to-date value, um, you get guys like the top of the list, you know, Jake Odorizzi, whose ADP this month was 170. But year-to-date, 
he's ranked 15th. He's a, he's a borderline first rounder and he went in round, you know, 14 or something like that. And, you know, Boyd, who I mentioned earlier is another one, Lucas Giolito, you know, th- this group, this 2025 names I came up with have no name recognition, but they're where all the value to date has been. And to me, I would have been collecting these guys all day long in this draft, you know, and, and I just feel like this is where the profit was and the, the name recognition guys might be kind of what I alluded to at the top of the discussion where people who drafted in May are still have their March drafts in their mind and are sort of, sort of being colored by you know, facts, not in evidence, or maybe more about their heavy preseason research and maybe not applying enough weight to what we've seen or what's happened in terms of injuries in the first two months. So I, I thought this was a, this was a very creating some very interesting implications for our full season games. It does. I thought that part of the list was really interesting too, because it indicates that there's a common mindset that Jake Odorizzi isn't for real. And maybe he's the kind of guy you could, you know, uh, swing a trade offer to his owner because maybe his owner's part of that mindset. And he thinks whatever I've got so far has been, has been gravy. And sooner or later, the gravy boat's going to spill onto the tablecloth and I don't want to be around to have to clean it up. So I'll be willing to trade to Jake Odorizzi, even though it appears that whatever the twins are doing with Jake Odorizzi and they have the new pitching coach up there from college ranks straight out of college to the major leagues and you have to believe that he must have impressed somebody in their front office with his ideas about how to get the Jake Odorizzi's of the world and make them effective. I think that's really interesting. And you referred in the article, if I remember correctly, that Ron Chandler used to say, you know, give me all the, uh, all the, the, the underperformers at the end of May and all the overperformers at the end of May and swap them. And I'll take the, I'll take the underperformers every time because they always turn out better. Yeah. But you know, one of the points I made there was the key difference was Ron used to do that exercise at <coughs> the beginning of May. And you know, these were leagues that start on June 1st. So if you f- go back, you know, three, four weeks now to, and did this exercise on May 1st, you know, the underperformer list would have, you know, Chris Sale on it. But Chris Sale had a fantastic May. So those profit opportunities from the hot or cold three weeks, four weeks of April, have largely washed out already. But so, you know, but people who are hot still in the hot or cold bucket at the end of May, you know, after two months of games rather than after one month, you know, I think we have to start taking a lot more seriously. So I'm not saying that all 25 guys on this, um, you know, sort of undervalued list are buys, but exactly how you were talking about with Odorizzi, you can take these 25 guys and dive deeper into their metrics and what's going on with them individually, decide which ones you believe in, and maybe you believe in half of them, and those make a nice, that still makes a nice list of trade targets to go shopping around for in your league and see who you might be able to pry loose because somebody else has the idea of selling high on, I don't know, Hunter Dozier for just to pull another random name off the list. Last question about this, Ray. I didn't see Tim Anderson's name anywhere. He's, a, of course, a kind of a top 10 hitter, I believe, so far this year. Still a little bit of a sag of late, but he's hammering the ball. He's stealing bases. He's even uh, batting for average. I thought he would be up in the in the top couple of rounds and uh, a huge gainer from ADPs. When I'm pretty sure he was like a 10th, 12th round guy in drafts early. Do you recall Tim Anderson's name anywhere? His ADP was 56. Uh, and his value was, yeah, you're right. His value was like flirting with first round at the time. So 
you know, but his ADP was like down like fourth, fifth round. That might be a team construction thing, just because you know sometimes it's hard to you know even trying to value him in the preseason. It was kind of hard to value the power and speed against the uh, you know the batting average penalty. It's one of those things where nobody wants to take on that sort of batting average penalty guy with an early pick and then have to manage the batting average all year long. So I I don't know. I like I said I wasn't in these drafts, but maybe people were looking at that three twenty batting average which was probably even higher a week or two ago when these guys drafted and just worried about the regression there. Um, I don't know. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, you used to be the regular speculator columnist at Baseball HQ, and this week you put that ball cap back on and wrote about mining the leading indicator section at Baseball HQ for fun and profit. Before we talk about any of the specifics, what do you mean by leading indicators? So we have a section on the website. Um, you know, we're very much, in general, uh, sort of teach you to fish. Here's our methodology. You can go apply it to your own league. But we're also <coughs> mindful that sometimes you just need some darn fish. So you know, these leading indicators reports are really sort of canned. We do the analysis for you. All you have to do is click on the links. And here's a list of potential home run surgers, potential stolen base surgers and faders and, you know, people who might, you know, relievers who are potentially showing skills that could make them closer candidates, closers who are showing skills that could make them vulnerable. Just it's a list of, I don't know, it must be 40 or 50 links on this page of, you know, slices like that at the data of like, all right, I need, I need to go shopping for power here. Give me some names I should look at. So um, I always used to use these links for sort of uh, column inspiration when I was writing the speculator. So with uh, me jumping back in that space this week, I kind of put that hat on and went right back to sort of my bread and butter to uh, mine that leading indicators section for some names that were worth talking about. The speculator column kind of ethos is this is where we take the 20% chance. And I have to say, uh, I thought this column was better than a 20% chance because what these leading indicators do is they say, here are guys whose skills are either way ahead of or way behind their current outcomes. And those are the kind of guys that you want to be looking at. But I think the chances of them being right are better than 20%, don't you? Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair point. Um, and sometimes it's not a bet, you know, I think the directional arrows that I pointed at here, that these particular names are going to be surgers or faders are not that speculative, but you might get into, you know, sometimes what I can do in this space too is then once I read the directional arrow, you know, uh, on more quote unquote sound analysis, then maybe you speculate or get to that 20% and underplay for a little bit of the, the degree or the, the strength of the arrow or, you know, how much of a change in performance could this mean? And I mentioned that this is skills-based. Uh, so, for example, in the batting average, surgers and faders, the list is filtered for players who have certain contact level above 85%, which is very high, and they have to have a power index or speed rating over 120, again, very high, and so on down the list. They have to have a certain number of games played and certain number of projected plate appearances. In the batting average surgers list for the American League, there were 11 names, which is quite a few, and you chose to highlight Michael Chavis of Boston. Uh, why Chavis? And he could be an example of how this process works yeah he's sort of an oddball on this list which i think is one of the reasons i grabbed him um like you said that list tries to highlight skills that 
lead to a strong batting average, and you can understand what those are, point discipline, you know, contact rate, not striking out, walking. But then you also, you know, you can't just have a noodle bat either. You need to have some power. You need to have some speed to be able to, you know, presumably beat out hits and that sort of thing. Um, and you need to hit line drives, which is another, you know, sort of core skill for serviceable batting average. And Chavis does the first half of that, description very poorly in terms of the plate control the plate discipline he walks well but he doesn't strike but he also strikes out a ton but he's got that power speed and spades and it's sort of like a modern day twist on you know what we would consider like a batting average the, the components of batting average for this you know launch angle high high strikeout but you know hit the ball swing hard you might hit it kind of era and you know Chavez is doing it that way and I just you know even though his your point skills are, you know, objectively shaky. You know, so many good things happen when he does put the bat on the ball that, you know, in this day and age, we got to sort of look past the, what, how, how frequently he doesn't put the bat on the ball and, you know, give him more credit for the good things that happen when he does. And without getting into details, the other skills indicator packages have similar filters. Uh, you found a potential power surger in each league. In the American League, you chose Rowdy Tellez of Toronto, and in the National League, Kyle Schwarber of the Cubs. Uh, give us a brief skinny on these two potential sources of power. Yeah, Tellez is interesting because you know I, I think we've established that he's got you know pretty big power. Even on his de- debut last September, he hit a bunch of home runs and that he was briefly in the minors at the start of this season and he's been up since then, but you know, he hasn't gone nuts or anything, but it looked to me like the big thing holding him back was, you know, his fly ball rates, you know, pretty average and a little bit down from what we saw when he first came up, you know, he's hitting fly balls of like 35, 36% rate, which in this launch angle era is not great. So, um, but he is hitting a lot of line drives, which is good for batting average, but also good in the sense that, you know, it's easier to turn line drives into home runs than it, it into fly balls and home runs than it is to, you know, completely re-architect your swing and turn ground balls into fly balls. So, you know, the, there's an adjustment needed here, but it, it might be a more subtle one. Uh, Schwarber, I mean, we don't need to talk about how, you know, the power he has. Um, that's pretty well established. But he's, the thing I like about him is that he's already doing what I was just describing with Telez. He's spiked his fly ball rate a few points this year. Uh, and when Kyle Schwarber, who we know he has significant power, is getting the ball in the air more, that can only be a good thing. And it hasn't actually translated to his home run rate yet, but that could happen, especially, you know, it's the beginning of June. It's, you know, he plays in Wrigley Field. It's going to get hot there soon, and the ball's going to start flying. And, you know, that seemed like a good place where you could see, you know, he's got 10 or 11 home runs now, and you could still see him taking a run into, you know, the mid-30s with a big surge over the summer here. Tella is also in a pretty good home run park, uh, and he seems to have locked into playing time now. The Jays appear to be entirely in their let's see what we got here for future mode. Uh, Smoke is DHing a lot and not playing sometimes, so there's playing time opportunity here for Rowdy Tellas as well. I was surprised, Ray, to see that you put Blake Trinan of Oakland as a saves-at-risk pitcher. I think of him, and I'm sure many of our listeners do, as a really established closer, one of the few really established closers in baseball. And he's 12 for 14 this year in his save opportunities. 86% save rate is also pretty high, pretty elite. Why is Blake trying in a risk? Yeah, you know, on the surface, he's sort of held it together. But, you know, if you look at his base skills, there's a lot of duct tape going on there. <coughs> he is across the board 
a shadow of what he was last year. I mean, don't get me wrong. He was going to get worse than he was last year. Last year, he was had one of the great closer seasons in history. But his... You know, he's got a 326 ERA this year, which is you know, pretty pedestrian for a closer, but his expected ERA is even worse at 444. He's walking, you know, nearly twice as many guys as he was last year. His strikeouts are down by two per game. Uh, you know, he's given up more home runs. You know, his, his skills are, you know, flat out below average right now. And in a bullpen where they have other good options like Lou Trevino, who's also a little bit off of what he was last year, but is still a still a good pitcher. Um, you know, I, I do get worried. There was, uh, you know, I think it was late April or so. There was a brief weekend where, you know, we were a little worried about Trinan's health. I think he had a, his elbow was barking or something. And this skill set really screams to me that something's still not right there. Maybe he pitches through it all year and holds it together and has a perfectly, you know, valid closer season with thirty saves at the end of the year, but. Uh, to me, there's some significant risk in this skill set because if you take away the name and just look at the skills underneath the stat line, there's not a lot here that makes you say there's that he's closer worthy. Yeah, the value of this to me, uh, as we talked about earlier, is that the flag goes up on Blake Trinan, and my approach to all of these kinds of things is I'm not taking your word for it. I'm going to go look for myself at least a little bit. And when I did, uh, I think maybe Blake Trinan's uh, uh, saves at risk pitcher that you flagged is worse than you might even have let on. His uh, strikeout rate is down from 32% last year to 24, so that's what a, a, a one quarter drop already. His walk rate has pretty much doubled from 6 to 12. His strikeout minus walk rate has halved. His uh, strikeouts per nine is down by two strikeouts per nine. The walks are up by double. Uh, strikeouts to walks is down by half. Everything here says look out uh, as far as I'm concerned. And the question is, why aren't more people talking about this? Well, if you're a trying owner, you know, to your point, like this doesn't seem like it's, you know, sort of in the, uh, you know, being discussed in the universe right now. So you still have an opportunity to get out from under him. I mean, if you dangle him in trade right now, someone's going to look at him on your league's homepage and say, oh, Blake Trinan, 12 saves, three and a quarter ERA. Sure, that's a stable closer. I'll pay accordingly. And, you know, if you can turn that into something else that you need, you know, you can get, you know, there's someone, someone's got to take the, take the deep dive to say that, um, you know, he, they shouldn't pay full value for him. So I would, you know, I'd be exploring that right now if I was holding Blake Trinan. In the starting pitcher skills, Ray, you noted the importance of recalibrating the indicators to match the realities of the changing major league environment. How do you do that? You know, this was funny because I looked at this, you know, browsing this uh, page, this top skills page, and I was looking at the filters we use and, you know, it set set for any pitcher with a K per nine rate of five and a half or more, which is, you know, virtually every pitcher in baseball these days. So I kind of chuckled to myself and said, "Oh, I need to go in and do some reca- do some uh, you know redefining of the filters on these reports for the uh, the way the game is played in 2019 because these are uh, these these date back to a different era. Uh, the reports still work because they sort by uh, best ex- expected ERAs at the top of the list, which is perfect. It's just that the uh, you know the list of p- people on this list is a lot longer than it needs to be." And in that starting pitcher package, Ray, you highlighted two Cincinnati starters. You mentioned Tyler Malley earlier, also Sonny Gray. What are they doing right that gives them the upside potential that you're identifying? Yeah, so one of the things I, you know, 
I went through this list with sort of like a name recognition test, and there are a lot of people, you know, you can bounce around here and see DeGrom and see Ryu and see Scherzer and see Kershaw and see German Marquez and Walker Bueller and Zach Grinke. And then you start seeing like Tyler Molly and Sonny Gray, like right mixed in with those guys. And you're like, oh, I didn't expect to see that. So uh, one of these guys I'm going to have to do a deep dive right up on, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'm due up for the Fat and Fruit Spotlight series where we sort of uh, open up the hood and uh, take take a player apart piece by piece. And uh, Gray or Molly is probably going to be my subject for that. Um, you were talking a bit about what the uh, Twins were doing differently with Odorizzi this year and having the new college pitching coach and, you know, changing approaches and all of that. And the same thing's going on in Cincinnati. They stole the uh, – what was it? The Brewers' assistant pitching coach, or the pitching coach from last year? Is that who they, who they brought in, and they you know, they gave him you know the charge to rework these guys? And you know, Gray was sort of a you know going to be a famous target of his because I think they have a relationship. I think great. I think this guy coached Gray in college or something like that. And oh, right. um, you know, Gray of course got tattooed, and particularly when he was with the Yankees last year, and his slider was getting raked all over the park. So I haven't taken the deep dive yet, but you know, my my, my suspicion is that this guy just managed to fix Gray slider or fix when he was throwing it or have him get it out of the strike zone or something like that all of the you know we sort of knew in the preseason sort of what the objectives would be in gray's case and you know based on the results you got it, it sort of looks like it's uh it's been mission accomplished so far it's an interesting point to make because one of the things I've been noticing this year is how many starting pitchers in particular are enjoying some success that comes as a bit of a surprise because they're changing their pitch mix, and especially a lot fewer fastballs. A lot of guys are, are being coached to rely on their fastball less and trust their breaking stuff more, which really, I think, discombobulates hitters because you grow up expecting to see 70% fastballs or 60% fastballs, and all of a sudden you're seeing 30% fastballs, and there's these other pitches that are maybe even not that great, but if they're around the strike zone, you know, they say, what is it, hitting is timing and pitching is upsetting timing, and I think pitchers are realizing that, and, uh, and we're seeing these fairly significant changes in pitch mix i think it could be a real fruitful area for analysis yeah it's one of these things where i think it's um you know it, it's of course a copycat league and these things start <coughs> with a couple of forward thinking teams and other people see see them and latch on to them uh you know the, the sort of the light bulb moment for me was the uh astros dodgers world series two years ago when the astros were using um you know their sort of tandem starters out of in relief. And what was it? It was Charlie Morton who came out of the bullpen in the last game and threw like four or five innings. And I don't think the guy threw a fastball in four or five innings. He was just going, you know, cur- slider after slider after curveball after curveball after curveball. I literally went, you know, 50, 60 pitches without a fastball. And, you know, that was you know something that I think the Astros were at the forefront of. And then last year, you know, a few more teams glatched onto that and, the uh, you know and now and now a bunch of you know teams like Minnesota Cincinnati etc you know now we're in sort of year three of that trend and it's you know it become that much more widespread that many more organizations have turned over both GMs and coaching staff since then and the, sort of the you know, more more people open to more new thought have come in and you know now you know what started as uh, you know you I, sort of if, if that 2016 World Series and the Astros success in general was sort of a spark for that. Now we have the sort of raging wildfire of it. 
Yeah, it makes me think, you know what, Ray, is that Major League Baseball is getting younger, and I think that's a huge part of it, and uh, dinosaurs like me and, uh, I don't know, higher-level reptiles like you, are we going to have to get with, the, get with the program, or I think we're going to become extinct too. Yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in, um, you know, in the, uh, you know, beyond the, you know, number crunching of the uh, Moneyball era, and you know, we've we've come a long way from you know OBP as a hidden skill, and there's a there's a lot more subtlety going on in the game right now, and uh, it's a uh, you know, the the constant effort to try to keep up with what we're seeing in front of us and analyze what's going on and why and what's good and why and how we can exploit it. Uh, you know, that the the bar for keeping up with that stuff just keeps getting higher and higher. And more and more interesting, I have to say, it's uh, oh, it's a lot of fun, right? Yeah, if you if you if you're not excited about it, and you know, think of it as a challenge, and you know, ready to chase after it, then uh, you know, we're doing the wrong things, right? Exactly. So you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site. And Ray, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. We've heard a few names so far. Do you have any more? Uh, How about an American League hitter who could be a boon? Uh, I'm going to put on my my local uh, Boston hat for this one. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. seems like he's coming out of what uh, looks like uh, had been a funk for the last year and a half. It's funny, when uh, we were doing the baseball forecaster this year, Brent was writing up Bradley, and he sort of reached out to me and said, hey, what went wrong here? And I said, you know, he's always been a streaky hitter, but he just never had his hot month that kind of propped up the stats for the entire year. As it turned out, the hot month was October. He was fantastic in the postseason last year, but that doesn't show up in his uh, forecaster box. Um, But, you know, he had another... You know, wow's the April into May this year, but he's really picked it up the last few weeks. And uh, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know how long the hot streak will last, but he's got a track record of when he gets hot of it lasting for a few months at a time. So uh, I've added him in a couple of leagues, you know, the last couple of weeks where he was available. And I'm hoping that he's an asset for the summer. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? I feel like I'm cheating because I've been touting Garrett Cooper for a couple of weeks before it was cool, and now it's cool, but I'm going to stick to it anyway. Uh, you know, the Marlins offense has been, you know, sneaky, not terrible the last couple of weeks, and uh, the surge is sort of correlated with when Cooper uh, came off the DL and slotted into the number two hole in that lineup, and he, I like him because he's he's got some actual plate skills. You know, he's not just another, you know, low batting average free swinger who's going to pick up home runs because everybody hits home runs these days. This is an actual, you know, pure hitter, batting average and power combo. Uh, you know, I he's got some, he's shown some inability to stay healthy, so I don't know how long the magic carpet ride's going to last, but uh, short term at least, I'm trying to ride the wave. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon? You know, I haven't gotten eyes on him yet, but uh, I'm hoping to do so. He's pitching against the Red Sox uh, tonight, actually. But uh, Danny Duffy's back in Kansas City, and we had a pretty poor outlook for him, you know, again, coming off of injury to start, you know, when he finally just started the year in the last couple of weeks. We were, our projection was pretty poor for him, but he statistically has looked pretty decent so far. So I'm, you know, it's a tepid recommendation right now. I'm hoping to get some eyes on him at his next start or two, but it looks like in a small sample size, he's uh, looking better than what we were expecting. Something I like about Danny Duffy is hard hit ball rate is off about 6%, which is really good. And he's getting more soft and medium hit balls. I, I always like that about a pitcher uh, in the national league. Ray, who's a boon pitcher. Uh, you know, we talked about 
Molly and Duffy, uh, Molly and Sonny Gray earlier, and we spent most of the time talking about Sonny Gray. But I'm a big Molly fan too. Uh, he's been really good in terms of skills over the last month. Uh, it hasn't shown up in the ERA yet, but I feel like that should happen at any time now. You know, it's a little risky because we're just coming into the warm weather and Cincinnati could be a launching pad at times. So it's not all good news, but um, in terms of, you know, skills in the month of May, he was just about as good as anybody in the National League. And again, another guy who's not walking anybody is uh, first couple of years, uh, walk rates over 10%. This year, under 6%. You got to like that, and his strikeout rate is up as well. Strikeouts and walks, man. You, you know, it seems basic, but it, it, there's a reason that it's basic. It's because it works. Uh, Ray Murphy's Boons, Jackie Bradley Jr. of Boston, Garrett Cooper of Miami, Danny Duffy of Kansas City, and Tyler Molly of Cincinnati. Ray, let's move over to your Banes. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll go to the American League. Who's a Bane hitter? Boston hat on again. I'm going to say Andrew Benintendi. I've watched a good bit of him, and I can't quite figure out what's wrong. I mean, he hasn't been terrible, and we had a. he might just be fulfilling our expectations in the sense that we had a... Uh, a comment in the forecaster this year that you know he might struggle to get back to 20 home runs and he's right almost on that pace right now but he's making less contact and his batting average is down in the 260s you know he'll still give you a you know 15 homers 15 stolen bases seems like a you know still a pretty safe baseline and then there's nothing terrible about that but you know I know he to me he was getting a little bit overdrafted in the spring and people thought there was another level to come there and I'm not seeing it so uh, I'm, I'm back. I, I was not on him th- that much to begin with, but uh, I, I, my pessimism is sort of getting underscored a little bit. My second most valuable tout American League hitter was Andrew Benintendi. I chose him over George Springer, a wise choice. My most expensive, Jose Ramirez. So I'm not getting a ton of production out of my top two spots, and yet I'm competing. It's 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 all good. By the way, Benintendi in an on-base league is still a bit more valuable than he would be in a in a batting average league. Yeah, a National League hitter who could be a boon, Ray. Uh, Ryan Braun, uh, as a Bane, I'm kind of worried about. Uh, you know, he's getting longer in the tooth now, and he hasn't been that productive. Uh, he's been surprisingly healthy. I don't think he went two months without going on the DL all last year, but he's he's stayed healthy so far. But you know, the production hasn't been there, and I get a little worried about this logjam in Milwaukee with uh, Travis Shaw coming off the DL now, and Jesus Aguiar has been bad, so Eric Thames has been... Um, stealing some first base at bats from him. But if Aguiar gets going, then, or if Keston Hura forces his way back up, you could see Thames or Shaw start to sneak out to the outfield and take some at bats from Braun. Braun is going to have to both stay healthy and hit better to keep playing regularly. And I, I don't trust his ability to do both of those things. I'm starting to think you're picking on me, Ryan Braun's <laughs> my outfield in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational. Over to the mound again now, Ray, and uh, who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? You know, Mike Biner has astounded me this year with how good he's been, uh, but I get worried that he's about to turn into a pumpkin. It's just starting to get hot in Texas, and Miner's workload issues, you know, career as a reliever, etc., just make me wonder how long he's going to hold up, uh, you know, generically for the full season, how many innings he can pitch, and then what effect the... Texas Heat is going to have on him. So, you know, all the praise in the world for what he's done so far. I just get worried about whether he can keep it up in the, uh, as it hits 100 degrees in Texas. And a National League pitcher who could be a bane. 
Uh, similar theme, uh, Hung Jin Ru and with the Dodgers. Uh, this is more of a durability and innings concern. I just looked this morning. I've got him on my uh, on a couple of my teams. Actually, he's been you know unbelievable. I, I believe as of this morning, he's the uh, most valuable pitcher year to date. But um, he's already thrown eighty innings. This is what happens when you're so good; they leave you on the mound. I, I, I looked it up. Eighty innings so far this year. He only threw eighty-two all of last year. This is the Dodgers, so you have to know that his vacation is coming soon. Um, and you know, it might. They have a ten-game lead in that division. They don't need to work him that hard down the stretch. His, uh, you know, his vacation might be a little more of the ten-inning variety because, excuse me, ten-day variety because they're going to pretty quickly get focused on having him in peak form for October, and I don't think they care how many innings he pitches in June or July or August at this point. Well, he has been having a sensational season. Uh, Ray Murphy's Baines, Andrew Benintendi of Boston, Ryan Braun of Milwaukee, Mike Miner of Texas, Hyungjin Ryu of the Dodgers. Uh, geez, Ray, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Ray Murphy. So you can uh, find me in the general manager's office at uh, Baseball HQ. You can follow me at Twitter on at Ray HQ. And if you want to meet me in person, uh, as I know you and Patrick as well, you have to come to uh, First Pitch Arizona. We just opened up uh, registrations this week. Uh, you can go to Baseball HQ on the right side of the homepage, click on the big First Pitch Arizona logo, and you can check out the dates. Uh, it's Columbus Day weekend this year, October 10th through 13th, uh, out at the Delta Mesa Phoenix Hotel. Uh, we'll be out there for a full weekend of uh, Arizona Fall League action and uh some heated and insightful fantasy baseball discussion. It's the best weekend of the year, right, Patrick? It is every bit of that, a ton of fun, and uh, it's fun to hang around with guys who, who are like you in that respect. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for hanging out with us today. I do appreciate it. We'll catch up with you again later in the year. Sounds good, Patrick. Thanks as always. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much. I gotta, I gotta thank all of you, all the fans here in San Francisco. Road and home, it's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I gotta thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong. And you've given me all the support in the world, and I'll never forget it, as long as I live. Thank you. i got to thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shikari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. i got to thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. Thank you for everything. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be a, uh, good to be a, back with you, PD. My mouth's not working today. 
Well, as long as your brain's working, your mouth will catch up eventually. <laughs> and well, uh, the uh, brain controls the mouth, so we could be in trouble. Well, there you go. <laughs> At Rotowire this week in the Z Files column, Todd, you're talking about Statcast metrics, uh, focusing in on exit velocity, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, I'm curious, uh, as an analyst, a guy who's been at this for a long time, how interesting, how useful do you find these uh, amazing new stats that we're getting through Statcast and Baseball Savant and so forth? I, uh, I'm very interested. Um, the problem is you can't keep, you know, I, I, I can't keep up with it all and continue to do some of the other things that I do. So I need to rely on people, you know, more adept at me at crunching the data, at getting the data and the whatnot and, and trusting their findings and then finding my own hopefully unique way to apply them or, you know, to the fantasy game. So I'm, I'm extremely, you know, extremely excited. It's just, you know, it's, time commitment and, and whatnot to i'm not going to be at the forefront of a lot of the analysis i just have to accept that and that's fine i find when i look at some of the analysis sites that have taken the data and started to massage them and try to convert them into more usable kinds of information uh, sometimes there's there's things about it i don't like and i end up going right back to the to the uh, uh raw data itself and mm-hmm. going through it manually and kind of recreating or reinventing the wheel in a lot of instances. Do you find yourself having to do that because whatever little nugget it is you're looking for just isn't there? Part of it. And then part of it too is, you know, it, it's, is it, StatCast, you know, just a fancy way of saying things we already knew and really isn't telling us anything we already knew, but just I don't know, supporting it in a in a numerical manner and in, in an actual objective manner. I think a lot of it is, but I do think that the the more the more granular we get over time, the more usefulness we'll get out of it. The other thing, and I think you you may be underlying what you just mentioned as far as going to some sites. Part of the problem is there's a lot of misuse of data still, and I you know the more data I suppose the more it's going to be misused too. So that's that's a problem as well, and and I kind of address. I don't say I don't know if it's a problem, but I address one of those things, uh, and what we'll talk about in a moment with with exit velocity. And next week I'm going to be writing about spin rates, in that they're presented as averages, and averages means there's a whole bunch of numbers, and you're just looking at the average of them, and it does it doesn't tell you, you know, the range, the distribution, and you know, an an average one per. You can't just look at the average and make a conclusion. It needs more context. Well, it needs more granularity as well. Yeah. Because if you say, it's like saying, you know, when I drive my car for a year, my average speed's around 37 miles an hour. But that's, uh, you know, 70 miles an hour on the freeway and, and 30 miles an hour in the city and, and 20 miles an hour inside school zones and so forth. And it doesn't really tell you that much about what I'm doing, except you'd assume that if my average velocity of my car for a year was closer to 70 than it is to 30, I'd drive on the highway more than I drive in the city. But you're, you you could have figured that out in a, in a much more easy fashion just by asking, you know, do you drive more in the city or do you drive more in the highway? And somebody could tell you, and that would be that. Yeah, the practical application is kind of silly, but... You know, the, the guy that fixes your brakes says, okay, what what, what did you average, what, what was your average MPG this year? Well, it was 37. Okay, you need brakes. Well, you don't know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> was it was it a steady 37 or was it, you know, 37 because you're in bumper-to-bumper traffic half the time and cruising the rest? So, yeah, that's that's sort of the point. You can't look at the number and make a conclusion. 
but you can look at the numbers and you can draw inferences, and that's what you did when you were looking at yeah. your uh, at at your uh, average exit velocity data. And you did mention that you separated it out from uh, ground balls, fly balls, and line drives. Uh, give us an overview of what you found. Yeah. So basically, a lot of times, I mean, I mentioned you can't keep up with everything. So one of the things I like to do is sort of the data is we're not in the final form yet. Statcast, etc. Uh, we're still in the process of fine-tuning collection and fine-tuning analysis. But I find if I wait to the end and try to jump in, it's just too much or I miss something. So a lot of times, I'll, I'll do a study, even if, it, even if the conclusion is, well, I don't, know, I don't know anything yet, but, you know, that was cool. I'll do it, and sometimes I'll publish it because why not? And that's kind of what I did here. And, I've, you know, looking at some players, the average exit velocity to me doesn't mean much because... You know, why their their home runs are up because of an average exit velocity. I don't know that. I want to know what the average exit velocity is on fly balls compared to the league, not not their overall exit velocity, because that includes softer hit balls, grounders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I took a look at uh, ground balls, fly balls, and what was classified as outfield line drives, leaving out pop ups and bunts and 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 and, and the whatnot, just because. At least for the analysis of the ball players, power it's it's not it's not it's not relevant. I don't think we really care about the launch angle of a pop up. We know it's you know pretty high, so uh, I I, I kind of I left out that data just because it wasn't it wasn't germane to the to the, co- to the topic. So I looked at ground balls, fly balls, and outfield line drives, and presented their exit velocity, their launch angle. And then some routine data, the BABIP and the the uh, the number, the home runs generated from the different hits, and the percentage of each batted ball, the how many you know, overall league wide, how many ground balls are hit, fly balls are hit, etc. And uh, just to kind of get a general baseline, and we can see some trends from the launch angle revolution. We can see some trends just from Statcast itself, how they're classifying things. Because uh, I mentioned in the piece, I'm sure you're going to bring it up. The uh, even if even if we make these things objective and we put barriers to the what's a ground what's a ground ball line drive outfield line drive et cetera et cetera, there's still there, even though it's electronically collected in this barriers, the 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 hits right around that the 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 boundary you know whatever it might be the exit velocity slash launch angle to de- uh, determine a line drive from a fly ball, there's going to be a number of hits right around that that mark and it just barely missed going into the next level, so I don't, I didn't kind of get granular on that level. So even, even then, the, the different players, depending upon how close they are to that individually to the, uh, to the, to the next de- uh, denotation, it could, you know, it matters on their analysis. But it was just to me, even without any player analysis, just kind of cool, just to, just to see the trends. Yeah, and I know what you mean about those demarcations between what constitutes one kind of hit versus what constitutes another kind of hit. And at some point, you have to set an arbitrary line. You say, okay, a hard hit ball is 91 plus miles an hour. Okay, so is there a quantitative difference between one that was hit at uh, 90.9 versus, uh, you know, 91.1? You know, it's it's a it's a very small difference to make a very large claim about a, a the 
quality of the of a batted ball. I see what you mean about that. Now, when you laid out the uh, the charts that are in the piece, uh, ground balls, fly balls, especially uh, the thing that jumps out at me from 2015 to 2019 was your uh, study period, and we see right away three percent three percentage points fewer ground balls and roughly. Uh, three percentage points more fly balls and that seems to be an indication of the launch angle revolution as you mentioned and tying in with that you looked at all the average launch angles for those years and it's always the same it's between 36 and 37 degrees so it's not a question of guys getting more launch angle it's a question of guys hitting the ball more to try to get it in the air right the you would one would you know so it's one of the great things about data, you know, you, data either backs up intuition or shows that the intuition was wrong, The especially on the fly balls. The launch angle on fly balls, it, it's actually decreasing, whether it, it's actually gone down like 0.1 every year. Whether that's real or just noise, I don't know, um, but the, the point is it's not going up. So intuitively you think, well, there's the elevated swing should increase not only increase the fly balls, but to increase it should increase the the launch angle on the fly balls, but it's not. So that's it, to me. It's just it's it's something. It's interesting to know. It may tie into may tie into Babbitt because if it's not struck cleanly, the fly balls that go higher, you know, may seem like they go further, but if they're not hit as hard, they're going to be caught. So there's more time. So I just thought, it, it, to me, it's actually, it's, it's kind of nice because there's, nice there's one less variable to have to add into the what's going on here. You know, the launch angles are the same. Again, it's an average launch angle. Some batters will have a higher average launch angle and some will have a lower. Although the ones I looked at, it was pretty much very close. Right, and then a whole bunch of stuff follows on from that, uh, the chief one being uh, exit velocities, which was the point of the article. And in ground balls, there's been virtually no change. It's bounce, bouncing around from around 86 miles an hour five years ago, 86.5 this year. You know, it's a c- couple of tenths of a mile an hour. There was a bit of a, of a fall in 2017 for an unexplained reason, which is something else somebody can look at. Again, all the launch angles are pretty much the same. Uh, but what we are seeing in ground balls is a decline in batting average on balls in play of 10 percentage points, a decline on batting average of about 10 percentage points, and no, ch- uh, and as I mentioned, no change in the exit velocity. But in fly balls, there's been a big increase in exit velocity and a big increase in fly ball distance. So why is it that you know ground balls are staying the same exit velocity and fly balls are getting uh, higher exit velocities? Yeah, now this is it's speculation on my part, and keeping in mind that the early study, and I haven't seen a follow-up, I'm a little surprised, maybe it's out there and they need to do a better job searching, but I would think it would be talked about, a follow-up that showed that the ball, we call it juiced, and I think we talked about this when it first came out, what does the word juiced mean, and, and when we hear, you know, what in, in one's mind, uh, the ball isn't wasn't shown to be bouncier, if you will, it was shown to have less drag. So a bouncier ball, you know, like a super ball, a bouncier ball, I would think would have a higher exit velocity, and at least at least according to the ground ball data, the exit velocity is the same. In the fly ball data, it's showing that it's that it's higher, but that makes sense because part you know you know narrative here, but part of the narrative about the the, the launch angle is batters are actually swinging harder. 
they're selling out for power. They they don't care if they strike out anymore, so they're swinging harder. So even though they're swinging harder on ground, even even on ground balls, the 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 day the, the 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 exit velocity seems to be the same. So at least using those two data points, I think it corroborates the notion that the reason the ball's traveling further isn't because it's spongier, isn't because it's jumping off the bat more, but it's because of the uh, reduced drag. Now, keeping in mind, and I'm going to do a look at this. I didn't hear. I'll probably do it on my own, and maybe I'll tweet about it. But the uh, the humidor was actually supposed to make the ball less spongy. So I'm curious to see how the batted ball data in Chase, uh, Chase Field um, in Arizona has changed because there, there it's not it's it's both it's a couple of things working on. There's a drag and the ball with the humidor is supposed to be less spongy. So I'm curious to see the exit velocities of the of the different hit different batted ball types in Arizona if they if they if it, if it corroborates if it shows that the humidor is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And again, just from what we see in in uh, Arizona, you'd suspect that it is doing something because there was a decline in uh, yep. home runs in, in Arizona. Now the the doesn't the humidor make it more spongy? Isn't the idea to make the ball softer so it has a lower coefficient of restitution, as they call it? So yeah, I, I may have had that backwards. Yeah, yeah, I may I may have had I, yeah yeah spongy's yeah spongy's the opposite of of um, yes. I had that backwards. <laughs> okay, so and and so there's another question here, which is how do you explain the fact that the exit velocity, which I believe is taken at the moment of impact in the first few feet off the bat, so we shouldn't expect to see a big variation between fly balls, ground balls, and line drives on exit velocities, except that in line drives the the bat has got a bigger chunk of the ball, I suspect. And indeed, we do see that exit velocities on line drives are consistently, you know, two or three miles an hour higher than they are on on fly balls, which in, are two or three miles an hour faster than on ground balls. And uh, it's just, it, it seems like what we're learning about the exit velocities is because they remain in lockstep as far as one being different from the other, that it's a quality of contact issue, pure and simple. Right. This has to do a little physics in that, and this is part of the launch angle and why it works, in that the maximum, I don't know if it'd be energy or momentum or probably both, is transferred when the, when the swing of the plane, the plane swing is, is similar to the motion of the ball, which, you know, contrary to what some announcers may say, it's not rising, it's dropping. So the, uh, the, on a fly ball, now granted, like you mentioned, the line, drive, line drives are squared up Salt more solid than fly balls, but the plane, the arc, the the, the 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 direction of the trajectory of the swing is still closer to matching the directory of the ball coming down on a fly ball. So I think more energy is transferred to a a fly ball swing than a ground ball swing. You know, when you're if you're if your swing is going up and you hit the ball on the ground, you you know you did not come close to hitting the center of it. You obviously topped it, and it's not going to transfer nearly as much energy. Because uh, the quality of contact isn't nearly as much, so that you know, at least, at least I can come up with a narrative as to why that 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 exists, and not at all surprised if, if that that's the case. What I am, well, we'll talk about players in a minute. What I am surprised about is Kristen Yelich, in particular, <laughs> his velocity on ground balls is the same as some online drives, some players online drives. That's just silly. 
Well, it indicates a, a really high level of bat speed. So he's trying yeah. whatever energy yeah. is getting transferred is more when he swings a bat than other guys. And that makes yeah. me think also uh, when you see a lower general velocity on ground balls, it could be that the kind of players who hit ground balls tend to not have the same yep. kind of bat speed as your Giancarlo Stanton's and Aaron Judge who put 120 mile an hour charges into their fly balls. And, and to me, that makes a lot of sense as well, although it, it again is a narrative that we're imposing on the situation. Right, it has to you know with the the number of ground balls hit. This is it's a rate stat. The you know average exit velocity is a rate stat. So that makes a lot of sense. And I didn't think of that. That's that's an excellent. It's an excellent point in that you know the the Malik Smiths of the of the of the world or, or Billy Hamiltons are hitting a lot of ground balls, and just by sheer power, you know, lack of power, they are going to be a lower velocity. So although I don't know bat speed. Well, yeah, that, I, that has to do with, you know, this is real physics. I mean, they could probably swing a bat as fast, but, but you know, I mentioned before momentum and energy, there's a, there's a M and a V. They get the V component, but I, the, 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 the M, the, the force behind it, they're just slighter individuals, and I'm not sure they can generate the, uh, the force off the bat. I think what would might be interesting, since we're talking about quality of contact, which does tend to get more into launch angle, is... If you if you made a scatter chart showing the exit velocities of balls based on their separation from the ideal, in other words, if you if you you, you mentioned topping a ball and if you top a ball really seriously so that it, it ends up being a slow a slow roller, it's going to have a very low exit velocity. But if you undercut a ball so that it goes uh, you know pretty much straight up in the air, I guess. I wonder whether there would be the same kind of decline in exit velocity because so little of the bat's energy got transferred to the ball. Yeah, now we're now we're bridging into the I need to rely on people better and smarter than me at this. Well, you're in and, the you wrong know, place. At, well, you know, you, you, you know, you write research uh, <laughs> as well as as you're writing. You know, you, 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 these ideas just start spinning, and sometimes you have to reel yourself back in and get back on topic and make a little note, look at this, or or, or research to see if this exists. That happened a number of t- a number of times while writing. You know, this is just a surface piece. It's just barely scratching the surface. But uh, you know, it just it tell you mentioned how excited it does get me excited for the fact that I know people out there that have more time to focus on this one thing are going to do so, and we're all going to benefit. And of course, the other aspect of the column that in the Z files this week is not just talking about the numbers in the abstract. As interesting as people like you and me find this thing, and I hope a lot of our listeners find it interesting as well. You also looked at some players, uh, three players in particular. They all happen to be in the National League, so let's not uh, get bent out of shape about that. But uh, let's talk about some of these guys, or all three of them, we have time. Uh, Derek Dietrich, the first guy, uh, Derek Dietrich's having a big year in Cincinnati, and uh, what did you learn about Derek Dietrich when you delved into his performance, especially with regard to exit velocities? Yeah, so you know the the question with Dietrich, and I I think you, you, you know, number scouting as I like to call it, he's got all this power, but that batting average and balls in play, people are saying that man, not only is you know the second half of the season, not only is he going to continue to pound home runs, but he's been unlucky with batting average. He's going to go up too, and even without looking at the data, I would warn people. The old adage that batting average and balls in play—it's nice. It's some people say it's useless. Some people think it's the be-all, end-all. You got to use it in context. And one of the issues, and we talked about it before, is that it does not capture hard-hit home runs. It—you it, it, don't get credit for those. 
and I, you know, looking at the looking at Dietrich's data, it kind of backs that up. But the other thing I found was that his batting average on balls in play of ground balls is low, and that's because his exit velocity on ground balls is low. And whether it's a, you know, this is the part where descriptive versus predictive, whether or not that gets uh, sustained or not, I don't know. But my concern, you know, we'll call it a concern, is if that's real, if the if the if the mechanism of his swing and the contact and the eye, his eye and, and whatever his timing is such that the ground balls he he hits are going to continue to have a lower exit velocity, well, he's not going to gain these, the luck. He's you know, it's not all bad luck that he's not getting hits on ground balls. There's a reason for it. So sure, the batting average and balls in play, he's probably do some regression. It's not going to go to his career mark, which is around 300. Uh, it's been higher the past couple of years in Miami, 320 or so, even without looking at the granular data based upon the first thing I mentioned. But it, the correction that he does get, I'm not sure that it's going to be you know that that it's going to be as much as some people hope, just because he's hitting soft ground balls and he's not fast enough to beat them out. The fielders get to them, um, and I think in some of the his batting average of balls in play has to do with the park. In that, um, if you if looking at the data, it appears I think you can come out with the narrative that because of his power, you know, outfielders are playing him really deep and the batting average and balls in play of his lofted balls is lower than league average. And this might just be because he's hitting so many home runs, they're playing him deep, and outfielders can get to the balls that are hit over their heads easier because they're playing so far back. And they can, uh, in Cincinnati, they can, they're either going to catch them or they're going to leave the yard. Whereas in Miami, they, there's a more more of an expanse, it's more of a pasture out there, so he was able to get more hits in the bigger park. It hurt power, but helped his average. So the bottom line with Derek Dietrich for me is, I am hearing people that are so excited because that batting average is going to soar over the second half. It's not going to soar. I think the power will keep up, but I temper my batting average expectation. Though of course, home runs are hits too, so he's not feeling the full extent of the of the of the batting average of balls in play uh, effect, uh, but but you know people are expecting his average to be even higher than it's been in previous years. That I don't see. I don't see it either because uh, you know you you mentioned that home runs are hits too and they count, which some people see. Uh, no, Gene McCaffrey does as a serious flaw in the BABIP calculation. Why don't you count home runs? You know they're hits, and uh, and that's certainly true, but. Uh, what we're talking about here is what is Dietrich going to do on balls that aren't home runs, and that's where the 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 ceiling gets placed on his average. He's hitting 263 or so right now. I wouldn't be surprised if he maintains that because if he hits home runs at the current pace, and we have no reason to believe that he's not going to do that, that uh, you know he's going to get credit for some of those hits that would be outs for lesser hitters, and and he's going to maintain his batting average, you know, 250, 260, somewhere around there. Not great, but certainly it's not going to be a, a huge disadvantage. You mentioned Christian Yelich. This guy can really hit. Oh man, you know, uh, yeah, and and you know, we know it, and we, you know, do you ever watch the game? You know, yeah, I watch the games. I watch him hit all the time, but breaking the numbers down in this manner is just, it's just mind-boggling. It just, uh, it just, it, it gives a new perspective, and that I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. 
his exit velocity on ground balls is 91.8, which I didn't you know break down every single player, but because the league average of of line drives isn't that much higher, I bet you his his, his you know his his batting average on uh, his exit average exit velocity on grounders is better is higher is faster than a lot of people how fast they hit line drives. That's just that's just wrong. He shouldn't be able to do that. And of course, the it it it, uh, it it holds true for the for the fly ball and the out and the outfield line drive as well. They're all incrementally incrementally you know, proportionately over the league average. Just just explaining why he's just so darn good and why everybody that you know not statistically oriented is making fun of everybody that says he's going to regress. You know, without understanding that. Regress doesn't necessarily mean play worse. It just means things out of his control return to the mean. And, you know, I know that that's not everybody's definition, but I like to use it as that. I don't like to, to me, it's not synonymous with play worse. There's things that, 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 the statistical element. And some of the things that we thought would regress, at least in my mind, regress for Yelich were the, uh, the home run per fly ball. And what we're learning is it's probably not. It's it just because, I mean, maybe people say, duh, I knew that anyway. I watched him play. But, you know, I, it's nice to look at the numbers and specifically the exit velocity numbers. They're just otherworldly. And even if he loses a little exit velocity, he's still going to continue pounding the ball. The only concern with Yelich would be, is he going to continue to maintain the elevated number of lofted balls. And I didn't even, you know, mention how, uh, well, actually that's with Bellinger. We'll talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, Bellinger, uh, excuse me, Yelich, it will he maintain the number of lofted balls. And if, if he does, if he does revert to more ground balls because of the exit velocity, his, his production's not going to change much. He's going to continue to get a ton of hits and probably steal some bases. You know, the, the power might fall a little bit. So it just, He's going to be productive, and again, I don't think anybody, you know, Zola, the writer of the year, because he's saying Christian Yelich is a really good ball player. We knew that, but I just, I do think looking at the numbers, the uh, granularity of the exit velocities is just, it just, there's just, I mean, I, I will now argue with those people that that are talking regression. I will look at it, you know, say he's not going to regress as much. Look at the individual exit velocities on his batted balls; they're just sick. And as you mentioned, I thought the key point about that was uh, he does not hit a lot of fly balls for a guy who's got as many home runs as he does. And I know a lot of people look at that and they say, elevated home run per fly ball rate, this can't continue, it must regress. And there may be some truth to that. But the issue I think that you correctly identify is even if he hits more ground balls, he's still going to be okay because that means he's <laughs> going to get more hits and his average is going to go up. And so whatever you lose in, in the home run value, you may gain back in the batting average value or even more considering what batting average is like these days, plus the uh, potential for stolen bases. I, I think that anybody who's got you know all three t- trajectories covered with 90-mile-an-hour-plus average velocities is going to be a valuable player. I don't care how those hits get distributed, how those batted balls get distributed, I should say. Yeah, now the point, you know, anybody who hits more ground balls by on, you know, on paper will get more hits because ground balls go for hits more than fly balls, but the point being Yelich as you suggested would get even more because of the exit velocity I mentioned, 
you know, we talked about Dietrich already. His 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 uh, velocity on ground balls is less than the league average. So if he were to hit fewer, and he's hitting a, a ton of fly balls, if his if his fly ball if he hits fewer fly balls, his average really get dinged. So he really needs to continue to 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 loft the ball to to continue to be successful because you don't want him hitting it on the ground. And you mentioned Cody Bellinger. He was the third member of the triumvirate that you looked at. Uh, the interesting thing that jumped out at me when I saw these uh, numbers before I even looked at exit velocity was he's got more outfield line drives than fly balls or ground balls, which seems astonishing to me. Right, and that brings into the sustainability aspect of it all. How close, you know, you mentioned the scatter charts. I'd like to see his scatter chart to see exactly, you know, how close to the, the delineation between fly ball and outfield line drive. He actually falls. Is he going to maintain that? The exit velocities are fairly close. So if it's just a matter of classification, maybe it's just a matter of classification. I don't know. But, um, the yeah, it, it is fascinating how he is, at least by the measurements, getting significantly more outfield line drives. And the difference, and here's the key, and even though, you know, and didn't really talk about it much, but the batting average in balls in play of outfield line drives versus fly balls is is huge. I mean, for, in Bellinger's cases alone, the batting average in balls in play on fly balls is .094. Uh, basically, almost everyone is caught. And on outfield line drives is, is .714. To those of us that are of a certain age, we number 714 means something to us. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the point being, um, if it, 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 it's just huge. And the, the classification of launch angle, it's about a 35-degree launch angle for the outfield fly ball and the average in the outfield line. I'm sorry, outfield fly ball, outfield line drives closer to 17%. He's right around those averages, but you know that that's a the range in between is where we're falling is 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 where we're wondering where he's falling. But um, there's some if he were to hit, this is the kind of weird aspect of it as far as power. If he hits a few more fly balls, his batting average is due for a big downturn. People are going to say that anyway because he's hitting 370, and you know there's no way that Cody Bellinger you know can continue to hit 370. He's a rare case where his average is higher than his batting average in balls in play. Um, actually, I don't know if that's rare, but um, it just it, it it just it's the case. But um, yeah, he he's he, to me the and then forgetting about the batted ball data, the 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 other two aspects of Bellinger's game is a he's he's cut down on the strikeouts significantly, and b he's crushing lefties. Remember, this is the the player who in the World Series was benched against Eduardo Rodriguez because he's a lefty, you know, a mediocre, not a well, better than mediocre, but not a, not an intimidating southpaw pitcher, and he's sitting on the bench in the World Series, and now he's coming out and he's crushing lefty, so there's a lot going on to his game, but yeah, it's the outfield line drive aspect of it, and based upon some stuff that Eno Saris talked about at first pitch Arizona, the exit velocity is more stable than the launch angle, so I think there is a chance, you know, the exit velocity is fine with Bellinger above average, but there is a chance that he ends up hitting more, you know, root straight fly balls, which will help the power, but it could, you know, that that's where the batting average is going to come down. If it happens, you know, that's the other thing, you know, yeah. it, it could be that Cody Bellinger just figured stuff yeah. out. We look at his past, especially, and we say, you mentioned the struggles against uh, left-handers, all of a sudden he's hitting them, so... 
you can just add a bunch of batting average points on that basis alone. And on you can add more to the fact that he's not striking out as much, which means he's putting more balls in play. And apparently he's doing so with great uh, thunder in his bat, which means he's going to collect more hits. He's going to do a whole bunch of things that are beneficial instead of striking out, which is, i.e., anything pretty much. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, I, I don't see his infield fly rate in this, uh, in this chart. Uh, I imagine it's fairly low as well. I just think sometimes the, these data, what they show us is guys like Cody Bellinger are pretty close to full value for what they're doing. Yeah, and like Yelich, he's running a bit too. You know, it's hard to run when you're circling the base paths after a home run, but both of them are chipping in with some steals. So they're they're the complete ball player. I I of the two, and I I kind of had a I kind of didn't kind of I had a question about this in a in a recent tout table a round table that we do each week. Which of the two Yelich or Bellinger did the touts feel would have a better fantasy season by year's end? And and Yelich was the was the you know was the leader and I I believe in Yel I believe Yelich as well just because there's I'm more confident that his profile is sustainable than I am Bellinger's Bellinger mentioned with with the with the outfield line drive and and whatnot I'm more confident that Yelich's you know superior exit velocity across the board will result in in elevated production you can see where a little you know, uh, where there's room for Bellinger, I don't know if it's even regress. If there's room for Bellinger's hit distribution to change enough that the the results are, are, are you know, influenced more than they would be for Bellinger, uh, for, for Yelich. Well, I'll take either of them over Jose Ramirez, who's <laughs> <laughs> killing two teams of mine. Todd, this has been really interesting. Uh, we'll, I'm sure, talk about this kind of stuff uh, as we go through the season. I do appreciate you taking the time. Catch you next week. Next week is Spin Rate. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hoagie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Trickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Cincinnati first baseman Brian O'Grady, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's powerful, he's versatile defensively, and he's batting 320 with 15 home runs at AAA with an OPS north of 1,000 in 2019, and he's probably still available in your league. That's right, we're talking about 27-year-old Cincinnati Reds potential late bloomer Brian O'Grady who may earn his shot at baseball stardom sooner rather than later. Despite the description, which may be better suited to a stain fighter or even a crime fighter, Brian O'Grady is still as versatile as he is powerful. In fact, Brian O'Grady is a really, really good all-around player, and we mean it. 
listed as a first baseman, effectively blocked in Cincinnati by Joey Votto. Brian O'Grady can play all over the diamond, including both corner infield positions and all three outfield positions. But therein lies the problem. Not only is Brian O'Grady blocked by Joey Votto, but he's also blocked by A. Eugenio Suarez, Jesse Winker, Nick Senzel, and Yasiel Puig, at least for the time being. That's why Brian O'Grady, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Maybe he's a long shot, but he certainly could be a long shot that pays off quickly. You see, Brian O'Grady credits Barry Larkin with helping him find his power stroke, and the results so far have been impressive, to say the least. After hitting a career-high 14 home runs total between AA and AAA in 2018, Brian O'Grady has already unleashed a career-high 15 home runs in only 48 games. Plus, in a town already known for its sluggers, Louisville, Brian O'Grady's 1,055 odd-base plus slugging percentage speaks for itself. In fact, it introduces itself and has reportedly already made the A-list for social gatherings and parties. Impressive all around, to say the least. But seriously, a closer look at Brian O'Grady's 11% walk rate shows that he has been extremely patient at the plate. However, Brian O'Grady's 66% contact rate so far in 2019 suggests his current 320 batting average is probably unsustainable. Then again, this Louisville slugger, who plays for the Bats, Cincinnati's AAA affiliate, hit the trifecta on Sunday, May 19th, clubbing three solo shots against the Buffalo Bisons. Wow! Oh yeah, and Brian O'Grady already has 11 steals, too, making him perhaps one of the biggest steals and best-kept secrets currently available on the waiver wire. Shh. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups. We have some key showdowns this weekend, including a marquee matchup on Sunday with defending Cy Young right-hander Blake Snell of Tampa in Boston for a showdown with the Red Sox and lefty Eduardo Rodriguez. And here to give you the goods on that and all the matchups is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Both good things and bad things come in pairs this weekend, beginning with a pair of American League twin bills on Saturday. Eastern Division rivals Boston and Tampa tangle in Fenway, and Western Division foes Texas and Oakland hook horns in the Lone Star State. A's hitters should come alive in Arlington all weekend as matchup ratings for the three Rangers starters range from minus 061 to minus 131 and total minus 307. The Twins are named after the Twin Cities pair of Minneapolis and St. Paul. At Comerica Park in Detroit, they're greeted by an opposing pair of pitchers from the Paper Tigers who have combined matchup ratings of minus 264. In Anaheim, Angels faithful may believe their batters are getting gifts from heaven. The visiting M's starters have combined matchup ratings of minus 241 for their pair of games this weekend. We have a pair of lefties facing one another in our marquee matchup and another pair of lefties in our marquee mismatch. Let's start with our marquee matchup in Fenway Park on Sunday. Last season, Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell has the third best matchup rating of the weekend at 245. 
He's the only one of the top four with a counterpart who also takes the hill with a strong start matchup rating. The Red Sox will rely on Eduardo Rodriguez, who has a matchup rating of 0.93. The 26-year-old Rodriguez is making his 101st Major League start and 13th of the year this Sunday. With seven more games started, he'll have six consecutive seasons with 20 or more starts. In his history with the hit rate and strand rate pair, Rodriguez has been bitten on both buns. His hit rate is a career-high 36% and his strand rate is a career-low 66%. Those contribute to his pair of career worsts in ERA at 488 and WHIP at 137. And that's despite a pair of career bests in first pitch strike rate at 63% and swinging strike rate at 13%. Rodriguez has three other pairs of promising career bests in a control rate of 2.7 walks per nine and a command ratio of 3.7 strikeouts per walk, a ground ball rate of 45% and a fly ball rate of 32%, an expected ERA of 374 and a BPV of 128. So far this season, Rodriguez has three PQS doms, three PQS disasters, and six PQS decents. Although he's overmatched against Snell, Rodriguez should still put up a respectable start this weekend. In his 12 games started this season, the 26-year-old Snell has four PQS doms, four PQS disasters, and four PQS decents. He may never match his 2018 Cy Young Award surface stats of 21 wins, 221 strikeouts, an ERA of 189, and a whip of 089. But Snell is showing career bests in the following pairs of peripherals. Strand rate at 72% and expected ERA at 278. Ground ball rate at 45% and fly ball rate at 32%. Control rate at 2.6 walks per nine and dominance rate at 12.4 strikeouts per nine. And a command ratio of 4.8 strikeouts per walk backed by a first pitch strike rate of 68% and a swinging strike rate of 20%. Snell hasn't given up more than one home run in a game since his first outing, but after a pair of seasons at 11%, Snell's home run per fly ball rate, with the livelier balls, is 19%. Still, Snell has a career-high BPV of 176. He'll be facing some right-handed Red Sox hitters who can pepper the green monster, so he may not dominate this Sunday, but he should still excel. There are six mismatches with matchup rating differentials of 250 or more this weekend, led by Max Scherzer at home in Washington on Saturday. Scherzer has the weekend's top matchup rating at 301 versus San Diego left-hander Eric Lauer, who has a matchup rating of minus 105. That's a matchup rating differential of 406. And surprising Twins right-hander Jake Odorizzi has a matchup rating of 159 for his home start on Saturday. He's facing one of those aforementioned paper tigers in lefty Gregory Soto, who has a matchup rating of minus 157. That's a matchup rating differential of 316. Let's look at how Odorizzi is stunning stat heads this season with 8 wins, 70 strikeouts and 64 innings pitched, a whip of 096, and an ERA of 196. In the baseball forecaster, we said about Odorizzi that one of these years his luck is going to run out. But it hasn't happened yet this season. Odorizzi is enjoying a pair of presents in his hit rate of 25% and his strand rate of 83%. Somehow, he's pairing a first pitch strike rate of only 57% with a control rate of 2.9 walks per nine. Odorizzi is working on what would be his sixth straight season of at least 28 starts, and he's putting up career bests in dominance rate at 9.8 strikeouts per nine, swinging strike rate at 13%, average fastball velocity at 92.8 miles per hour, BPV at 102, and roto value at $28. 
Perhaps the key is his career-low batter's face per game of just 20.8. In 12 starts, he's gone more than six innings only twice and less than six innings seven times. Odorizzi's home run per nine and home run per fly ball rates are about half his career averages, while his expected ERA of four is more than twice his surface ERA. Maybe it is better to be lucky than good. To recap, stack your lineups with Twins, A's, and Angels if you can. Go with Blake Snell, but there's no need to avoid Eduardo Rodriguez. If you're feeling lucky, stick with Jake Odorizzi. And if you want to rely on more than luck, use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to pick your pitchers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to give you the May Quiz. We're more than a third of the way through the 2019 fantasy baseball season, and as we put the second month into the books, there's no better way to mark the occasion than with our regular monthly Master Notes quiz time. By now you should be familiar with the rules. There will be 25 questions, 15 about hitters, 7 about starting pitchers, and 3 about relief pitchers. To qualify for questions about rate stats, like batting average or on-base percentage, hitters need at least 70 plate appearances in the month. All hitters were included in questions about who got the most of a counting stat. Not that it mattered much. To qualify as starting pitchers, pitchers must have only started games and averaged at least 19 batters faced per game. That was to eliminate the openers who are changing the game but not the quiz. Not yet, anyway. Any pitcher who didn't qualify as a starting pitcher was classified as a reliever, and to qualify for rate stats like ERA and strikeout rate, starting pitchers needed to have faced at least 70 batters in the month. As always, give yourself as many points as you think you deserve for your right answers and penalize yourself appropriately for your wrong answers. Don't be a bully. If you have a terrifically high score, call your local paper, if there still is one where you live, and tell them all about it. Remember to phrase all your answers in the form of answers. I'll give the answers five seconds after each question. If you need extra time to mull things over or cheat by going to BaseballReference.com, just pause the podcast. Nobody will know. You ready? Let's begin with the hitters. Hitter question one. Nolan Arenado of Colorado led all qualified hitters with a 1262 OPS in the month. Put these other Colorado hitters in the correct order of their May OPSs from highest to lowest. Note these are not in sequence like 4th, 5th, 6th, or 7th. Just put them in order. Charlie Blackman, Ian Desmond, Ryan McMahon, and Trevor Story. The order goes Blackman in 8th place at 11.26, Desmond in 13th at 10.27, Story 22nd at 9.91, and McMahon is 52nd at 8.96. Hitter question 2. Nolan Arenado also led May with a 4.25 batting average. Which breakout star in the National League Central rang up a 3.90 batting average for 2nd place? Josh Bell of Pittsburgh was second in batting average for the month with that 390 mark. Hitter question three. Within five of the 251 qualified hitters, how many had on-base percentages of 400 or higher for the month? Twenty-four hitters had 400 or better on-base percentages in May, so you'd be right if your answer was from 19 to 29. 
Hitter question four. Which Red Sox slugger led Boston in May batting average and was fourth overall in the month? The productive Carmine was catcher Christian Vasquez, who slashed 373, 397, 560. Hitter question five. Speaking of American League East catchers, which one had the lowest batting average of all the qualified hitters in May? Toronto catcher Danny Jansen had a 143 batting average for the month. He was 9 for 63. To think he was the subject of bidding wars. Hitter question 6. Which former All-Star was jettisoned by his AL Central team after posting an MLB worst 186 slugging percentage for the month, the lowest among all qualified hitters? Cleveland outfielder Carlos Gonzalez had that 186 slugging for May, so it's little wonder his team, struggling to keep their ship afloat, threw cargo overboard. Hitter question 7. Quick, among Miguel Cabrera, Adam Frazier, Jose Peraza, and Victor Robles, who had the highest slugging percentage in May? Ha! It was a trick question. All four players slugged exactly 352. Hitter question 8. Three players belted a dozen home runs in May. Pittsburgh first baseman Josh Bell and Houston third baseman shortstop Alex Bregman were two of them. Which National League Central hitter was the third? Derek Dietrich of Cincinnati, who also led all qualified hitters by posting a 571 ISO for the month. Question 9. Mike Trout tied for the lead in May with 22 unintentional walks, which American League Central hitter tied with Trout in that category. The other walkmeister was Cleveland first baseman Carlos Santana. Hitter question 10. Match the Garcia to his May achievement. The Garcias, Avisail of Tampa, Greg of San Diego, and Leury of the White Sox. And the achievements, 90-plus plate appearances but only one walk, 100 plate appearances with a 1037 OPS, and 72 plate appearances with a 375 on-base percentage. Avisail had the 1037 OPS in 100 plate appearances, 11th among qualified hitters. Greg Garcia had the 375 on-base percentage in 72 plate appearances, making him 82nd for the month in that stat, and Leury was the only hitter with 90-plus plate appearances and only one walk. Hitter question 11. Among players who had at least four home runs and four stolen bases in May, Trevor Story of Colorado led with a combined 12, eight homers and four stolen bases. Christian Yelich had 11, seven plus four, combined swipes and taters. We'll call them sweaters. That tied him for second place with what American League East outfielder? Kevin Kiermeyer of Tampa also had 11 sweaters, 4 home runs, and 7 bags. Hitter question 12. Two hitters, both of whom play in the same city, struck out more than 40 times apiece in May. Who were they? Well, 
Well, they call it the Windy City, and that might be because the two hitters were Joan Moncada of the White Sox, swinging and creating wind with 44 strikeouts, and Javier Baez of the Cubs, who had 42. Hitter question 13. Among qualified hitters, Andrelton Simmons of the Angels, Michael Brantley of Houston, and Justin Turner of L.A. were 1-2-3 in May. In what percentage metric? Simmons, Brantley, and Turner were the win, place, and show horses in the race for lowest strikeout percentage. 5.6% for Simmons, 6.5% for Brantley, and 7.5% for Turner. Brandon Lau of Tampa and Will Myers of San Diego tied for the highest strikeout rate at 37.5% of their plate appearances. Hitter question 14. Not much of a surprise that Mike Trout at 19.7% and Joey Gallo of Texas at 19.4% finished second and third in highest walk percentage among qualified hitters in May. But what National League Central hitter was number one? The top walker by percentage in May was Eric Thames of Milwaukee at 21.5%. Hitter question 15. What American League West leadfoot led the majors in grounding into double plays in May with eight rally killers? Albert Pujols of the Angels bounced into eight double plays, one more than teammate Simmons, and two more than Daniel Robertson of Tampa and Marcel Ozuna of St. Louis. So that wraps up the hitters. How did you do? Hey, don't answer. I was just being polite. Let's move on to starting pitchers. Starting pitcher question one. Hyun Jin Ryu of Los Angeles was the talk of baseball in May with a 5-0 record, an 0-59 ERA, and an 0-68 whip. From this alphabetical list, pick out three other starters who had ERAs and whips under one for the month. Tyler Glasnow, Frankie Montas, Charlie Morton, Jake Odorizzi, Brad Peacock, Annabelle Sanchez, Mike Soroka, Julio Tehran, and Brandon Woodruff. The other double sub one guys were Soroka at 079-076, Odorizzi at 094-087, and Tehran at 098-098. But all those other guys were close too. It was a good month for some. Starting pitcher question number two. Boston starter Chris Sale ran away with the May strikeout race, fanning 66 hitters in his six starts. That was 15 more strikeouts than which American League Central starting pitcher in second place? Shane Bieber of Cleveland was second in K's for May with 51, nosing Steven Strasburg of Washington and Zach Wheeler of the Mets, who had 50 apiece. Starting pitcher question number three. Sale also led the starting pitcher pack by striking out 43.1% of opposing hitters. Which American League West starting pitcher was second in that race? The runner-up in strikeout percentage for May was Garrett Cole of Houston at 41.2%. Starting pitcher question number four. Ryu and Garrett Cole were the first and fourth in lowest walk rates for May at 1.8% of hitters and 2.6% respectively. Arizona starting pitcher Zach Greinke tied for second with which inaccurately monikered National League West starting pitcher. (laughs) 
The inaptly named Walker Bueller of Los Angeles and Granke both had walk rates of 2.4%. Starting pitcher question five. Among starters with four or more starts, which Central Division starting pitchers tied for the highest walk rate in May at 14.1% of batters faced? Doling out the free passes were Brad Keller of Kansas City and Chris Archer of Pittsburgh. Give the tiebreaker to Keller, who had 19 walks to Archer's 14 despite the tie. Starting pitcher question six. Some analysts, including this one, believe control ratio should not just assess walks per nine, but should also count hit-by-pitches, wild pitches, and box, all of which put runners on or advance runners. Using that formulation, which National League West starter showed the worst enhanced control ratio in May? The spray gun approach belonged to San Francisco starter Drew Pomerantz, who allowed nine walks, two hit-by-pitches, and one wild pitch in just ten and a third innings for an enhanced control ratio of 10.5 per nine innings. The only other pitcher even in the same zip code of horrendous control as Pomerantz was literally in the same zip code as Pomerantz. Andrew Suarez of the Giants posted seven walks and two wild pitches in ten innings for his 8.1 enhanced control rate. The lowest marks in the month, Rayu, Granke, and Bueller, all under 1.0. Starting pitcher question 7. Which two National League East pitchers were in the top five of home runs allowed with 11 and 10? The NL East gopher ball specialists were Mike Fultonevich of Atlanta, who had the 11, and Jared Eichhoff of Philadelphia, who had the 10. The other top home run giver-uppers were Kyle Freeland of Colorado, he had 11, and Carlos Carrasco of Cleveland and David Hess of Baltimore, each with 10. If we scale homers to nine innings pitched, the home run per nine leader was Pomerantz again at an astounding 5.2 homers per nine. Six starting pitchers gave up no home runs in May in 25 or more innings. Kevin Gosman, Brad Keller, too busy giving up those walks, I guess, Frankie Montas, Tanner Rourke, Rayu, and Tehran. And that's it for the starting pitcher questions. And again, please don't try to tell me how you did. It's a podcast. I can't hear you. And finally, on we go with three questions about May's relievers. Relief pitcher question one. These seven relievers had at least 10 innings pitched in May. Jesse Chavez of Texas, Kyle Crick of Pittsburgh, Josh Hader of Milwaukee, Matt McGill of Minnesota, Evan Marshall of the White Sox, Adam Ottavino of the Yankees, and Emilio Pagan of Tampa. Of those seven relievers, six did not allow even one earned run. Which one of them did give up one earned run? Surprisingly, the one reliever to give up an earned run out of the group was Josh Hader. Relief pitcher question two. Ten relievers had made dominance rates of 14.5 strikeouts per nine or higher. One of them was San Francisco relief pitcher Will Smith. How did Smith stand out from this crowd of heavy heaters? All nine of the other relievers on that high dom list had at least two walks. Josh James of Houston had seven. But Smith didn't walk any of the 37 hitters he faced in the month. And relief pitcher question three. Which American League closer led the majors in May with the lowest batting average against? 
Chicago White Sox closer Alex Colomay allowed opponents only an 0-63 batting average against, just a little better than erstwhile Texas closer Jose Leclerc, who is at 0-95, and Josh Hader at 0-98. On the other end of that scale, Pittsburgh swingman Nick Kingham made all his opponents look like George Brett, allowing a 3.91 batting average against. And that's it. Thanks for taking the May quiz. We'll be back with the June edition next month. It's a monthly thing, you see. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Ray does a great job running HQ's business and technical operations, and he's also a top-notch writer and fantasy baseball analyst. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on social media, Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.